Pardon me, sir. I'm afraid we're a little late with the podcast. Chef tells me we ran out about 10 minutes ago. Wait a minute. What? Are, are, are you joking? No podcast? No podcast. The, the main reason we came here was for the podcast. No, 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 no. It's not all right. They should have said that to us at the door. They should have warned us that there was a danger of running out of podcasts. Well, I mean, we drove all the way from New York. No, no, you know what? Listen, take, 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 take the, take the, take the podcast. I don't want to share it. I promised my wife the podcast. I want you, I want you to bring the podcast for my wife. I promise. Just bring me some coffee. No blueberry pie. What do I want blueberry pie for? That really bugs me. (laughs) Are you out? I'm out. Yeah. You nailed it. That was great. I had to dig to find a transcript of the script that was very poorly formatted and then (laughs) cut out all the intermediate dialogue from everyone else. That's my favorite moment in the movie. It's a good moment. And especially like hearing hearing you say it, like the whole time I was watching the film, I thought Griffin Griffin would kill this part. If they remake it again again, I mean I yeah, honestly, you know, my number one choice for the role. Should it be like a star is born? Like we just have a heartbreak kid every 30-ish years. Every generation deserves its heartbreak kid, yeah. (laughs) The problem is they nailed it so hard the last time. It really feels (laughs) like... <laughs> this is this is a genuine thought I had. Okay, uh, I I don't say this in any sort of uh, uh, self pitying way. This is I say this uh, soberly, uh, coming off of uh, uh, ten months of uh, forced reflection upon every element of my life in quarantine. Right? I, I increasingly mm. have just been in this state of just like, what do I actually want to do with myself? Questioning whether I I still want to be like uh, on camera acting. I've been very happy with the voiceover work I'm doing. I was getting very tired of the the racket of. Uh, uh, on camera stuff yeah, and and yeah. the the burn of it and whatever and I'm so scared to get back on set right now that it just feels like by the time I'm vaccinated it'll have been so long I wonder if I'll you know, have the drive or whatever and ah, what I, you still got it if you and want. it's safe you want. being on oh, set so, is safe so safe so safe so safe I mean Batman got COVID but other than that it's safe there's um, not constant breakouts because using no. tests isn't a good way to determine no. whether or not people can be in contact. But no, no, it's fine. Uh, we didn't almost kill young Sheldon. Uh, I was talking <laughs> with young my Sheldon uncle. in trouble. I didn't know about that. No, one. there was a shutdown. There was a flare up, but he's okay, fine okay, now. Okay, okay, right, I'm going okay. tangent on a tangent on a tangent, but I was okay, speaking geez. to one of my best friends the other day, and she was like, "It's kind of incredible how quickly uh, everyone adopted the same bad." Uh, attitude that exists with uh, STDs onto COVID. Where it's just like, well, if I trust somebody, I'm not going to get it, right? <laughs> I had a test like six months ago. I'm probably ne- I'm good. I'm clean, right? If I trust someone or if they're rich enough. Right. If they're fancy, I'm not going to get it. If it's in a nice hotel, I'm not going to get it. Uh, this is what I was going to say. When, when I think about all this stuff, the acting stuff, I think more than anything, like, I don't have any desire to be, like, the guy anymore, right? Like, any ambitions I had when I was younger to be, like, a star and a leading man in my own weird way. I'm just like, I don't need that work. I so much prefer coming and getting out. And then I watched this movie and I was like, if I was ever, ever going to be a movie star, this is exactly who I want to be. You want to be Grodin. I, I want to be Charles Grodin. Yeah. And, and it's because I think he just... Did this balancing act, and we'll talk about his career, but he somehow became a very odd leading man without ever, ever devoting an ounce of energy towards audience sympathy. Never. And 
Never. And we'll talk, right, the arc of his career where he's like, yeah, I'll be the lead. And then I'll, you know, and then I won't be. Who cares? Right. Like, Who I don't gives have a to shit? be the lead all the time. Right. You know, I'll be a weirdo. And then he comes back in family movies as the grump. He's like, fine, whatever. But also he's like, I don't know. I'll, I'll write for, you know, a, a show as well. Right. You know, I can do that. Like, I'll do whatever I want. I'm trying to sort of have a Gordon cadence right now, even if I'm not doing an impression. Come on. All right. I don't care. I just, I feel like, uh, you know, it's not that like, oh, I only want to play assholes, but I just like, especially from my experience with the tick of just like how much added stress there is if people are like, you got to be likable. People need to be rooting for you, you know? And it's just like, no, you just want to act. You just want to act and hope that what you're doing is compelling enough that people watch. I don't really care about people liking me, you know? But I mean, I I guess the problem is that it's, it's how do you get a movie with the protagonist unlikable in this specific way, how do you get that made today? Doesn't happen. Like, Doesn't happen. You don't get right. you don't get a movie of this size and type made today, but also even if you did, it would have to have a likable yeah, you just couldn't do it. Yeah, and you look at as a counterpoint Ben Stiller's career and you look at as a counterpoint the Heartbreak Kid remake and the interesting uh, changes that are made there. But let's let's say what we're talking about. We're not talking about 2007's Heartbreak Kid. No, not yet. Maybe one day. No, because look, we're not talking about the Farrelly brothers. This is Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. And this is a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. And this is a mini series on the films of Elaine, May, April, showers, bring May flowers this year all true because april is may we're knocking out the shortest filmography we've ever done and and it is an injustice that the filmography is this short it's disgusting yep but this is her second film in certain ways i feel like it's her most beloved even though it's been so out of circulation for so it's long. her most definable hit i would say right you know right. and and probably yes the movie that the most people have heard of at the time like you know in the 70s 80s people knew this movie i right now it's like yes. you said it's so how how did you i mean it's on youtube did you see that i did so we'll we'll talk about this in a second because yes this is heartbreak kid this is the pod break cast that is of course the name of this mini series we're at the titular episode and we have a long long overdue mm-hmm. guest she is not just a great friend of the show but i feel like internally and i believe i've said this to you as well, I consider this guest to be our our first real fan of the show, like the first the first real Blanky, right? Even before Blanky existed as a term. Yes, and I and I come to this recording as a fan, ready to embarrass myself, um, make myself a, 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 a specter of everything that can go wrong when someone comes onto a podcast, someone that the other fans can be furious at and also take apart pick apart the the genuine problems with my appearance i'm really excited to do a bad job oh god great uh, great great no i'm uh, i'm such a i'm such a fan of the show i i think early on i did get a shout out during one of the the star wars apps and it was the highlight of my of my year that year um obviously that must have been a bad year because everything has been just on the up since then <laughs> currently the best year of my life that, um, that was the last bad year of your life. Yeah, 2015. 
I I gotta say I just I just listened to uh, I think the most recent app that came out at the time of this record is the um, Marwen right? Marwen and yeah. I think you mentioned loopy app at the end of that the idea of the Star Wars apps being interminable or something like that and I'm sorry I I don't think there's been a better thirty episode run of a podcast it just I I'm sorry I'm sorry to ruin an episode about another film by gushing over <laughs> the the very podcast that I'm on, but the the level of incisive film analysis and the the stuff you can learn about not just Star Wars films but filmmaking and media in general by listening to those podcasts. I'm just so I'm so happy to be on this show and especially to discuss this film which is a masterpiece yes well let me say our guest today is avery addison our dear friend a a brilliant writer uh comedian in her own right but i remember vividly because when we started the show david had his circle of people who followed him from the av club and who he knew personally you know his friends right and i had the small circle of people mostly from the the gethard show community and having done the the gethard show podcast and then my friends and when we started doing the phantom podcast Podcast, it felt like, oh, we know every single person who's listening. We can chart directly every single person who's listening to the show. That's absolutely right. Right. And then I I remember it was early on. I want to say it was in that Phantom run, the first 10 episodes, David went, Avery Edison wrote about us. And I said, what? In, in Today and Tabs, right? Right. Yeah, I did. Yeah. You did. You did your Today and Tabs recommendation. And he said, this is like a big deal. Like, Avery is cool, she's got good opinions, and she right. actually somehow listens to our show and recommends it to other people who don't know us. I I mean... Well, I'm, I mean, I'm tapping out on the episode now. That's me done. I've, uh, it was so I've cool. gushed and gotten some gush in return. Um, it is a Chris Morris jam style, endless gush. Oh, <laughs> uh, endless gush. Uh, my favorite ever line from Jam is when, do you remember the the one, it's the, the doctor who does the sex line mm-hmm. while he's being a doctor, but he does the sex line in the same calm manner as, as, as his doctor, and he just picks up the phone, he's like, sorry, one second, yes, yes, I've come on my knee, yes, and then he hangs <laughs> up the phone, I think about that all the time, I'm sorry, just that delivery. What are the two of you talking about? We're talking about a sketch show, a British... It's, um... I'm actually not sure how David knows about mm. this. It was a mm. yeah. I mm. I, I lived in Canada, in America, there? for a short time in my twenties. But my basically my whole life, I've lived in the country of my birth, Great Britain, right. Scotland right. at first, then England. You're coming. You're coming to us from Britain right now. Yeah, this I've lived a, in London. Right, yeah. Currently in Liverpool. Um, right. g- I grew up in Dorset. Love, lovely, lovely place to to look at, not to experience. I mean, look these sure. these are all locations that make sense for you to have that reference point, and even yeah, spending 100%. time in Canada, they obviously export a lot of uh, British mm-hmm. comedy to Canada. I, I I wonder if Jam made it to Canada. Any yeah. Canadians, let me know if Jam made it all the way to Canada because I don't I doubt it. But yes, you're right, you're right. But as you have seemed to have forgotten, I grew up in Britain as well, <gasps> Griffin. Oh. David, uh, you know, but from the ages of David. nine to twenty-two, I lived there for thirteen years. Wow. So we were probably, we were probably in England at the same time. Yeah, that's I mean, crazy. I would imagine so. I mean, that is just even, you know the kind of bizarre coincidence. It makes you think: Is God real? Yeah. 
Maybe, you know, maybe when I was at the Virgin Megastore in freaking Tottenham Court Road or whatever. No, I was strictly HMV. It, no, no, it I couldn't was have strictly. happened. You were strictly exclusively HMV. HMV. Wow. Yeah. Now, can you make the argument for HMV over Virgin? Uh, my mother's weird uh, class prejudices that somehow hmm. decided Virgin was good and HMV was bad. Uh Turns out, growing up and living on my own has been a process of learning that the weird preferences I have uh, come from my mother's inscrutable obsession with not looking as poor as we were, and somehow <laughs> Virgin versus HMV played into that. Is HMV still going? Is it it's I, still? I don't a think thing? so. No. No. I, it, I don't think it? Virgin is either. I believe HMV still exists in Canada. Am I wrong about yes. that? And I think them. I think there might be one store in London over here. Yeah, maybe? it looks like right. They've been bought out by some. You know. Yeah. No, you know what? It 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 even closed in Canada. It closed in 2017 in Canada. Wow. The, the the HMV in Hampstead. Like, uh, I just spent hours there. And then that thing where you know you would go in and you had like, you know, ten pounds. Like that was the, that was all you had. You know, ten it's not pounds. Like you could go in and, wow. Look at Mister Moneybags. Oh uh, boy, yeah, money monster over here. I could buy one one thing. You know that thing where you just sort of like go around. and You're like. I think it's going to be this, but then you're walking around for ages being like, eh, is there anything that's going to knock this out of my hand? Ugh. I I grew up I grew up in, incredibly poor, so I yeah, I I truly would not have 10 pounds on my hands. I would just go in there, stare at the thing I wanted, and that thing of maybe if I stare long enough and sadly enough, someone behind the counter will see my desperation and take pity on me and somehow give it to me for free. And then when I finally got a job in my teen years, I spent probably my first paycheck on the series one to three box set of Family Guy and was oh, the happiest wow. event. You had to. I, I I also owned that box set. It was a good, but the good well. seasons. The the good seasons before yes, the and it was like, Oh yeah, it's this weird show. Is this sort of yeah, this silly American show that got cancelled kind of fast. Jet wow. suck, Yankees suck, Krypton sucks, one of the hardest times I've ever laughed in my life. Wow, this is even crazier than that time Avery bought seasons one through three at HMV. No, it's not crazier than that, Peter. It is that. Oh, oh, sorry. Anyway, how do we get on this? How do we get on jam? I mean, I'm trying uh, to remember. It, gushing. Oh, it the, the praise. Gushing. Yes, the praise, the praise. No, but it was truly. That's the moment that Dave and I like turned to each other and said, like, oh, we might actually be making something that uh, people and someone listens to. Right. Yes. I mean. Not to, and we should, you know, not not to suggest that the show is some, you know, colossal globes conquering force now. But I do remember, Griffin, at the end of that first year mm -hmm. when we did the live show mm -hmm. at uh, Union Hall, which is a capacity, what do you think, Griffin, like 50, 60 people or whatever, right? Like however many yeah, people you can I sit in there. Yeah, I think you can standing room 75 maybe. Yeah. Pre-COVID. So like, I was like, yes, yes. yeah, right now it's 12. <laughs> Post-COVID, two. Yeah, now um, it's really two. That space is two. <laughs> yeah. I just remember saying to you like, Griff, Griff, like, Come, is anyone gonna show up to this? Like we were terrified that just no one would show up. Yeah, and you were like, "It's okay. We we have enough friends and stuff that the yeah. people will be there, right?" But I yes. was really thinking, like, "Are we gonna walk out to an empty crowd?" No, and th I had that exact same fear. And there was also the the question of like, how many of our friends are coming to this out of pity who don't even listen to the show and don't like Star Wars and are not gonna be receptive? Hundred percent. I was like, "Oh, oh no." Right. It'll be people who are like, Jesus, they're watching the fucking 
revenge of the si- I don't want to do this. I have to watch this. Right, like your mom came and your she mom did. had not seen Revenge of the Sith before and had never listened to the podcast. No, and you were like, Griffin, I feel bad that she's going to sit here. My mother had never seen a Star Wars movie before. Okay, I was about to say that and I wasn't sure if that was correct. <laughs> Which really is... Like, my dad saw Star Wars like seven times in theaters. It's not like it wasn't in the family. I watched it, obviously. My mom had just been like, yeah, not for me. And had just successfully dodged for decades. Astounding that it's still the only context in which she has seen any Star Wars film. No, because she saw The Force Awakens. That was the second movie. Because if you remember, everybody saw that movie. It was that kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, people forget that movie made very close to a billion dollars domestically America, alone, right. and everyone went to see it. And my parents and my sister saw it, and that was the last Star Wars movie they'll ever see. It's, it's same with my they mom. They hadn't seen a Star Wars movie in fucking 15 years. They won't see another one, but it was just like, I guess, I don't know, I gotta get my license renewed, go see the Star Wars reboot. She was like, I'd like to see it, and we watched it, and we came out, and she, I was like, what did you think? And she was like, Harrison Ford was just great. Like, he was so good. I just loved yeah. seeing Harrison Ford turning it on you know and i was like yeah anything else and she's like that's it those are my thoughts like i whatever she she assumed kylo ren was just darth vader she didn't like want to think about it too hard wow that's great for kylo ren he's gonna be thrilled incredible (laughs) yeah i know he was like yes got someone nailed it i nailed it (laughs) yeah uh i've shared this anecdote too many times my mom went to the bathroom during the scene where kylo kills han solo and then came back and her question after the end of the movie was, why is he just not in the last 30 minutes at all? It's weird <laughs> right. that they just kind of drop Han Solo as a character. <laughs> oh, boy. But yes, Avery, uh, uh, your support of the show has always been uh, so deeply meaningful uh, uh, because uh, you are such a smart person, uh, funny oh, person with you. good taste. Uh, long overdue to have you on the show. Uh, opened up now because of uh, uh, covid uh, forcing us to do episodes with people in different places in the world. And by forcing us, I mean gifting us with the opportunity. I mean, yeah, when when quarantine first, when first uh, locked down, uh, I, I did see people saying, oh, this is great. All my favorite podcasts can now uh, maybe get some long distance guests. And someone I think even even like mentioned me and said, maybe Avery Edison can be on blank check and i like remember faving it and being like and now to wait and it's uh hey, uh, hey. you know i kept thinking as the lockdowns would ease like oh i've missed the missed the shot but luckily yes. for me covid has kept going and thank uh, god in that Phew. sense covid is a victory for me and in that sense, Avery, I ask, can you please stop COVID? Because I understand <laughs> that you stretched this out for a while because you wanted to make right. sure you got in some of the podcasts. Now I was I was behind I was behind the UK variants. Yep. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I these new strains just they really reek of Avery. I I could I could see your fingerprints all over them. Um Avery, you said that this film is, in your opinion, a masterpiece. Yes. Uh what is your relationship with this movie and with Elaine May overall? My relationship with Elaine May is that when I was in Canada at uh, comedy school, uh, I performed several of her sketches at mm-hmm. uh, various shows. Um, other than that, I had no relationship until recently when, uh, yeah, just entering lockdown and being like, okay, it's time to catch up on some some filmmakers. Let's let's go through some filmographies, maybe find someone who has massive success with a film and then gets mm. a series of blank checks. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where the idea came from for that, but it's something that who really knows? just hit me and resonated. Um, 
And yeah, just I I watched this with my uh with my girlfriend and her sister, and we were losing our minds. And I've watched it a couple more times uh, since then, especially obviously in the run up to this podcast. I've watched um all of the the three other on, films she's on Letterboxd. Directed. Right, you were you were logging them. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I was uh, I was cramming essentially for this record. Um, uh, and yeah, it's 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 criminal that uh, according to IMDb, like obviously you'll get to this on the episode, but I guess Ishtar created the term movie jail, or at least that's Absolutely. what the trivia section there says. Uh, yes, yes, it, it it is one of the canonical modern bounces. Yeah, due in in no part to any structural gendered forces. <laughs> well, look, we'll certainly get to all this stuff when we yeah. talk about yeah. Ishtar, but it is fascinating. I, I saw her, uh, there was the thing where like Ishtar had been out of circulation for so long, along with this movie. I mean, this is another issue is that like, We've you know, long her- mulled her because Ishtar is like, a top 10 famous bounce of all time, right? Ishtar and, and with that has critical reappraisal and has, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I that. love it. Yeah. Um, but, but that, you know, her films have, have largely been harder to see for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ishtar and Mikey and Nikki are thankfully more readily available now. New Leaf as well. Uh, but a lot of them were sort of off home video and streaming legal avenues for a long time. This one still is, um, and and the perception was always that like oh Ishtar was like such an atomic bomb and the press whirlwind around it was so horrible that no one ever let her make a movie again. And I saw when there was uh, uh they had remastered Ishtar. They were gonna release it on Blu-ray. They did like a 92nd Street Y screening uh, with her doing a Q and A afterwards, which was just like. Oh, my God. I went to go see it as, like, a curio uh, because I just assumed, like, oh, this movie's bad, right? I just want to see this out of completism. Um, And I'll I'll say other things she said when we get to our Ishtar episode. But uh, they asked her about it, like, the feeling of being in movie jail, whoever was moderating. And she said, like, it wasn't that. I mean, I could have made other movies. I just, like, was over it at that point. Right, because it was a a horrible experience. She was so pissed off by the experience of Ishtar, compounded with the experience of Mikey and Nikki, which is always very, also very difficult. That I think, like, look, people should have been tripping over themselves to continue to give her opportunities. She should not have have gotten the reputation that she did. But still, she very much speaks as if it was an empowered decision of like, I'm not going to play this fucking game anymore. I don't want to grovel at these people's shoes for the chance to direct like a talking horse movie so I can get myself back in the good graces of the people who think Ishtar is bad, you know? Well, you mentioned Mikey and Nikki being trouble, but I, I and again, this is just going off of like, IMDb and old reviews, so maybe it's wrong, but it it seems like even the production processes processes for a new leaf and oh, heartbreak yeah. it like it seems like yes, she's yes. always wrestling for control, and I don't know if I don't know if that's part of her uh, temperament or the choices she makes. Um, obviously, Mikey Nikki, she shot like a million and a half feet of film, and I I think for a new leaf, she shot like. A hundred hours of it. it was, yeah, it was, like, and she presented a three-hour cut, and right. the studio took it away from her. Yeah, no, it's true, and she never had a relaxed, uh, creative process where she was totally in control and was not being second-guessed at some point. Yeah, uh, this is probably the chillest, and this she still has to deal with Neil Simon being like, yeah. "Don't touch my words," and you know, like you know, like it, even this uh, was not 
a smooth sailing right. No, and it's such a bizarre kind of setup because it's like this is kind of her only for hire work, mm. right? I mean, like, sure. uh, Beatty is the one who comes to her with the idea for Ishtar, but she develops it, right? Yeah, and that's also Beatty being like, I am the magnanimous, wonderful Warren Beatty, and I want to get you right. back into movies. And then when she starts making the movie, he's like, I've got a lot of ideas. I am I am famous control freak Warren Beatty. It was me all along. Right. But but that, that having been said, all four of these movies, it feels like are exactly what she wanted to make. That she stands behind them with complete pride and complete ownership, but... It was an absolutely torturous process to get there. They're they're all so good. I think A New Leaf might be the one where she, that's not true. But the others, yeah. Okay, fair enough. They're all so good and they're all so thematically, like, linked and clearly hers. Like, they all have this running theme of what will you put up with? to be with another person. <laughs> They're all about weird relationships, but the first two movies are about very toxic, ill-begotten male-female relationships, and the latter two are about weird, codependent, intimate male, male, male. relationships. Right, yeah, yeah, it's true. Right, like... but, but they are just about, yes, these uneasy couplings of people, you know, who end up one way or another having to coexist with each other, whether or not it's actually the healthiest thing for them. Um, it also like you know she constantly was like well the movie should be three hours long and like would then fight with studios or producers mm -hmm. or whoever who'd be like well i can't be three hours long elaine like it's a comedy yeah. right you know like so but like but you but you see you see the takes in in heartbreak kid where it's you know it's a neil simon script he writes this thing expecting it to be rat-a-tat-tat -tat, and the joy of this movie is the slowness of it yeah and the absolutely. way the way this back and forth dialogue just crawls along and the way it i i don't think you would have such a humanizing uh portrayal of of basically every character without the fact that she insists on slowing it down so much and so you can see why yeah she finds she finds the 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 joy in these long moments. Of course, she's going to want to create long films. Yeah. yeah I, it's crazy that Neil Simon wrote this, not in terms of the setup, but just in terms of like, it doesn't sound like a Neil Simon, as but you're saying. That's, yeah. that's the weird thing. It's like, A, this is the only movie she directs that isn't her own script, right? She obviously collaborates with other people on her projects. She incubates them, develops them. But this is a movie where Neil Simon writes the script and says, I want Elaine May to direct this. I want her to be hired to direct this film. And then she gets very involved with it, right? But mm -hmm. also, this is the only thing that Neil Simon ever wrote it's it's the only screenplay he ever wrote that was an adaptation of his own play or his own original script. Is that right? Mm. Like, I, yeah. I mean, he has so many scripts that, yeah, right. Jesus. Right. But it was always a play for. But he never or, adapted someone else's work. Right. Um, yeah. No, right. He's right. You're, you're, you're right. He's adapting someone else's right. work. Yeah. So yeah. you have two major kind of American comedic forces of the 20th century, both doing things that they never did before and never did again. Yeah. Right, and you have Bruce J. Freeman, and you look at the poster for this movie. Great. Poster. The main poster is like a cartoon drawing of a heart that looks like it was drawn by a three-year-old, like a sort of like lumpy, misshapen heart. A kid, if you will. Yes. <laughs> and it just says "the heartbreak kid" in big red letters, but in between each of those words, it says Elaine May directed it, Neil Simon wrote it, 
Bruce J. Friedman conceived it. That is a wild way to sell a movie that are just like, here are three high-class humorists. Mm, We're not telling you who's in it. We're not telling you what the premise of the movie is. Here is a doodle, and we're telling you that these three very witty or bane people had their their fingers on this. But then you get you get into the movie and it and it says like right at the start, an Elaine May film. Like Yeah. Yeah. It's not afraid to, you know, ditch those two and make it very clear, like, yeah, this is just her. And it also says Neil Simon's the heartbreak kid, because mm. Neil Simon didn't want to give Bruce J. Friedman the story by credit in the opening. So he gets it in the end credits, but they don't credit either writer at the beginning, I think. They just do that possessive. Because like the Right, the Neil Simon's branding was so prevalent. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, There's a I mean, you're talking about the weird slowness of this movie. There's a great piece that I'll probably keep referencing too much that I read uh uh it's a bright wall dark room piece from like a year ago that Ethan Warren wrote called Still Heartbroken After All These Years. And he compares uh this movie the 2007 remake, but more importantly says like, let's look at like the Arthur Hiller Neil Simon movies that come out the couple of years before this, right? Like, look at the difference in adaptation and performance and editing and rhythms between, uh, you know, like Out of Towners or uh, uh, Plaza Suite, Odd Couple, uh, right? Um, yeah, all that, all that stuff. I mean, funnily, I mean, like she, Elaine May is in California Suite a few years yes. later, like which is a pretty bad movie although she kind of rules in it she and Matthau are kind of the they're fun but like which is another just where it's like yeah you know well we're doing neil simon this will be done in an hour like let's just let's you know right. it's like a play like just do your dialogue hit your marks neil simon already did all the work for you right like that's you know yeah I mean, I'll just I'll just read this this quick graph. But but uh, Avery, what you're saying about Neil Simon immediately you're associated with this rat a tat tat thing, right? And even like Mike Nichols, who comes from the exact same place as Elaine May, you know, their sensibilities are formed by each other. Is a very distinctive filmmaker. When he makes a Neil Simon movie, it is very much Mike Nichols doing a Neil Simon movie, as opposed to Mike Nichols turning a Neil Simon play into a Mike Nichols movie. It's always going to be. Neil Simon's right. uh, first and foremost. Right. So so this quote here, the, the screenplay eschews much of this uh much of this melancholy in favor of a distinctly Simon-esque cavalcade of gaffes, quips, and barbs. It's not hard to imagine putting the script up on a Broadway stage with lines like, I don't hand out my daughter to newlyweds, bellowed at the cheap seats to thunderous laughter. No, it's not hard at all to imagine. Perfectly fine, perfectly serviceable, heartbreak kid, perhaps one directed by Arthur Hiller with all the rapid fire line readings and indifferent camera work of the out of towners. And the whole point he's kind of making is like she forces you to actually live in the circumstances of this movie. It is a movie where she is forcing you to not just get out with the cheap laughs of like, oh, what a funny setup. That you really just have to live with this guy. And and there's such a big shift between this one and the remake in terms of, you know, and, and Neil Simon always said, like, he complained that she cast Jeannie Berlin. There's this mm. awful story where he did not know Jeannie Berlin was Elaine May's daughter and went and complained to Elaine May that, quote, the actress she hired wasn't sexy enough. <laughs> Neil. Right. Which is also sort of the point of the character in a way. Yes. Like, I mean, I think she looks like an absolute dime when she arrives Agreed. at the pool in that bikini. But, yeah, the whole point is that, like, you, you put her next to Sybil Shepard and she's 
she's going to look like yesterday's leftover dinner, you know, next to a prime rib, right? And yeah, that that is a, a funny, a, a weird thing for him to complain about. But, you know, men will complain about weird things. Uh, yes, welcome to Blank Check with Griffin and David. He he really pushed for Diane Keaton to play that character, which would have been so uh, fundamentally ruinous. That'd but be it's... a disaster. Because you'd be like, I mean, maybe Diane Keaton would deliver this incredible performance and you're like, yeah, no. But like, I, I, it would make no sense. Carry on. But that's, but that's the point. I mean, that. the problem is, the problem is she would turn it into a performance, right? A, it would be like, well, let's get someone who's more conventionally sexy at the beginning of the movie so the guys in the audience understand why he married her in the first place, right? Right, right. So it's like, well, how could he resist? And then let's have Diane Keaton give this very, very masterfully crafted comedic performance of a nightmare person so that everyone in the audience understands why he doesn't want to be with her anymore. And there's something just to the casting, aside from the fact that Jeannie Berlin is so good, there's something just to the fact that in in the role of the undesirable woman, the director hires her daughter, right? You're immediately putting so much more empathy into that character yeah. than, right. than the structure of the story demands it. And Grodin, the, the story about uh, uh, Simon complaining that Jeannie Berlin wasn't sexy enough comes from Grodin's memoir. And he also said that uh, for years, Neil Simon tried to do a good uh, Heartbreak Kid uh, musical. And he hired Bacharach to do the songs. He went through like so many different teams to try to do it. And he could never crack it because he said he couldn't figure out the interiority of that character. Wow. And it's so telling in terms of like what Elaine May contributes here, not just in what she puts into that character, Lila, right? Yeah. Um, but but also just the general, I'm not going to let this movie get away with being surfacy. I'm not going to let it get away with being like, well, of course I would do the same guy thing in this guy's shoes. You know, right. it's really trying to drill down into the most uncomfortable aspects of what this situation represents, you know, culturally and everything. Yeah. For people who don't, who like maybe only know of the remake and, you know, know that there was an older one and know the premise and all that, it, it might be shocking to know, to hear that the Eddie Albert and um, Gina Berlin got, Oscar nominations for yes. this, right? And and tr- it it really is like, yeah, that level of empathy that she puts into these characters. Like even the the line you said, "I don't hand my daughter out to newlyweds." It's a funny line, and also like when he says it, like, yeah, it's it's you can see the rage mixed with yeah. confusion, and it's not just a tossed off line. No, it's, he really means it. He yeah. he delivers it like it's a dirty hairy line. Like that's yeah. what's incredible about it. And you're like that line would work on Broadway. I could see a funny actor. I could see Richard Kind delivering that and killing. You know, getting an applause break. The, the befuddled no... dad who's right. just like, I, the, "What's this whirlwind romance that's blowing through yeah. my boring life?" Instead, Eddie Albert's just like, "Who's this?" fucking punk who won't leave right. me alone and is essentially harassing my daughter like that's how he plays it just absolute rage and Jeannie Berlin plays that character as an, a real human being and uh, you know aside from the fact that this is not the type of movie that you think of getting two acting nominations you know especially in a modern context it's also like the two performances that got nominated are the dilemmas in the movie mm. like they're the characters mm. that are like the conflicts to the main character but it speaks to how fully rounded those characters are and how insightful those performances are not just that but this is a you know 
crackerjack Oscar year where like Eddie Albert is nominated alongside three actors from The Godfather and Joel Gray and Cabaret. Like, wow. you know, like, I mean, Pacino is its category fraud that Pacino was supporting actor, but like that that's that's like one of the most insane best supporting actor lineups ever. Yeah. Him yeah, con right, involved. Right. And then, you know, supporting actress, you've only got the uh I guess they didn't even nominate Talia Shire. That's rude. She got nominated, nominated for, two. for part two. She's so good in one though, and she's yeah, she's you know. Anyway. I love that Griffin calls it calls it two as two. opposed to part two. I I just finished watching all the Sopranos and that's a that's a surprise. They call it yeah, two. two. Yeah, yeah. Not part two. What do you prefer, one or two? No, yeah, they call it two. Uh, uh, but, but just a, just a a huge year, a huge yeah, uh, Oscary movie year. Right? It's not like these guys snuck in or whatever. Like they, yeah. it's just these were exceptional performances that are kind of like burned into your brain even after the character is, is in Jeannie Berlin's case, like gone. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You, I mean, you talk about them being the, the like the the complications or the thing that's you know trying to stop the 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 main guy from having his fun, right? But I, I, you could almost look at the film, and I, I imagine we'll talk about this more, and obviously you two will talk about it more less than me. But it's it's a film so much about Jewish identity, especially yes. compared with. Uh, white American identity or more traditional white American identity. And the idea that um, that Groden is, his character is trying to constantly with his like fast paced lies and like he's trying to do that type of movie. He's trying to turn it into just a screwball thing so he can get away with his caper and the humanity of Albert and Berlin is resisting that and turning it into that slower movie. Like if right. everyone was on Grodin's level, it would be like a level in terms of of speed of delivery and with the um the heaviness that the character is treating the circumstance, it would be just back and forth. But that's that's so much of it is just that this movie is resisting Grodin, right? Yeah. Like in every sense, it is resisting becoming the movie that Grodin's character is trying to turn it into. Even even the way he says when he says, I'm a newlywed, as if and just that intonation of it's one of those situations where you know how it happens. You're a newly and he falls over. I made the big mistake about five days ago, and it's just like the way he's tossing it off. Like I know we've all had. Has this ever right, happened exactly. to you? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. What are you gonna do? You got married. You fell in love with someone else immediately. I'm sorry. Like you he know. truly just just wants to blow right past it. And both the movie and the director will not let that lie. Like, no, you right. can't just forget your wife. And that's maybe the most masterful scene in the movie, just in terms of like, it feels like something out of funny games. Like you've just trapped this guy 
in this like Absolutely. four shot around the table, watching himself dig himself deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you see on his face that you think he's pulling it off. And you <laughs> see on the other three faces that whenever he stops talking, he's going to get ripped. But that makes it so funny. Oh, Sybil God. Shepherd in the background. Oh. Just not knowing what to do, embarrassed, yeah. also slightly hoping he pulls it off. Yes. The mom being so sweet and just trying to do that sort of appeasement, make everything make yeah. everything nice. Yeah, like right, sort of brush over everything. Yes. I mean, we don't have to talk about um the remake much, obviously. But it is telling that in the Farrelly Brothers remake the Lila character is just a pure evil monster, right? I was going to say, she's Beetlejuice. violent, she's like a drug addict, she's mean, She and right. it's just like, he's got to get rid of this person. Like, this this is just awful. Like she's a, she's a liability, and it's also just that, like, she goes from being, like, overly idealized dream woman romantic comedy to being, like, oh, she's, like, a convict, and she's a liar, she's violent, and all this sort of There's shit. There's a maliciousness yeah. to her. Like, she's yeah. doing it on purpose. But even the pitch of the performance is just... It, she's the ex from, you know, from hell. Right. There's no attempt to to uh, make her uh, have any recognizable human behaviors once they get to the resort, right? I mean, it's just like... I mean, the scene where they sleep together for the first time is one of the big, like, fairly brother, gross-out comedic set pieces of the movie, and it's framed around she's so crazy in bed it hurts him. Right. Which is just such a bizarre framing of a thing. It, I mean, look, we will do the Farrelly brothers one day. Yes. Probably. We must. We must open the book. Um, but it is, and we should stop talking about the remake because it's irrelevant. It's just sort of, in, the remake is just this interesting text in that it is like, oh, this is such a fundamental misunderstanding. Like, mm-hmm. that it's just sort of crazy that they put it out there. And obviously, they put it out there and everyone was like, no, and it made no money. And that was that. Uh, yeah. That's not actually true. It actually made some money, but um, but it was it was it underperformed. It was not. Yes, yes. Um, but like, yeah, like just for them to think like, let's pay homage to this sort yeah. of iconic comedy and these two iconic comedy figures in Neil, Neil Simon and Elaine May, with just like, what if the heartbreak kid? Except it was like the the Jeannie Berlin character was a gross out comedy. Like, it's just, it's just, a, anyway, we don't have to talk about it anymore. Well, and I'm they sorry. think they're doing this. No, I, I want to say two things about it very quickly. Yes, go ahead. They think they're doing this progressive thing circa 2007 where it's like, but look, his wife is more of the shishka. Yes, that's that's the thing they think is clever that it's like he and Michelle he fell Moynihan in love is like sort of this birth. tomboy, yes. earthy brunette right. lady. Sure, she's right. a freckle. Neither of them are Jewish. We, we, we but... cannot deny. Right, right. That's the one thing they think they're doing. So they're like, I don't know, but the one he's with at the beginning looks more like a, a Maxim magazine bombshell. So it's not that thing. The other thing is, I think. It runs into the exact same problem that Neil Simon ran into trying to do this material again, which is in both cases, the Fairley brothers and Neil Simon are like, it doesn't need to be as caustic as what Elaine May did. I want this guy to be likable. And what Elaine May recognized to some degree is this guy is not likable. No. The entire comedic <laughs> premise of this movie is bad. It looks bad for him. So either you can make a movie about the fact that he's bad or you can fail making a movie about a guy you want the audience to like. He's never going to be low status, you know? He does one almost noble thing in the movie, which is when he, you know, drops the bomb and breaks up with her, he agrees to give her this great, enormous settlement. And then 
almost immediately when he meets with the lawyer and the lawyer says, I could have got you a better deal. He says, no, 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 don't do that. I mean, if you want to talk to her, if she's willing <laughs> right, to talk, right. see what you can do. Like, there's this one moment where you think, well, at least... At least he did that. And no, he's he's willing to... This is to... my mistake and I need to pay for it. And you're yeah. like, wow, that's surprisingly mature from this guy. And then he's like, do I need to pay for it? Though? Right. Do I need to pay for it that much? Oh, my God. Yes. I, I mean, I love it, to be clear. That scene just... Tra- I mean, the, the, every time she pulls off that little, like, knife twist, which she does many yeah. times in this movie, it just... It makes me, like, cackle. Like, I and I, I know that's yeah. what she wants me to do, but it is also, like, that's sort of the perverse joy of the of an Elaine May comedy. But it's such a key Elaine May thing is I just think she has an equal amount of adoration and absolute disdain for every human being, right? Mm. I, I feel like... Elaine May fundamentally her whole kind of comedic view of the world is she is just a a violently unsentimental person, right? She's able to sort of recognize the best and worst qualities of people and be charmed by who people are in their totality without ever feeling like she's endorsing them or condemning them, right? And I think this movie was very revolutionary. I think her whole career is. But this movie in particular, I think, is somewhat of a turning point in the sensibility of American comedies in that kind of way of letting behavior get messier and also how you shoot and edit performances and, you know, not needing to be rat a tat tat tight 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 um you know clean uh, audience allegiance sort of you know uh, clearly defined lines kind of way um but it, it is that thing of just like it wouldn't work if she fully hated the guy mm. but it also wouldn't work if she thought he was charming you know right and I mean, I'm sure you'll you'll get to this maybe more in the Mikey and Nikki episode, but I part that was inspired by she supposedly grew grew up around mob connected people and saw saw some pretty like horrible people in formative years of her mm-hmm. life. So, like, yeah, she 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 must have had to you know if if they were close relatives or you know part of the family in some way, you have to learn to see. The, What's appealing? The humanity What's charming? Some horrible yes. people. Yeah. I, I also think she just is one of those people who is just finds human behavior very fascinating. Like it is very fascinating that this person can also do this, mm. that they can have these two contradictory traits, you know? She, I mean, she's right to not, like the, the she's not judgmental in the way a Hollywood comedy is, would normally be. But in that yeah. a Hollywood comedy usually needs to make a judgment about a character fairly quickly so that the audience is like, OK, I get it. This is the scold. This is the weirdo. This is the oddball. You know, like I get where you're putting this person in the comic like environment and like and then I laughs will follow. And she's just like letting the behavior speak for itself and it's it's there's nothing like this movie and no, her other no. movie there's really this uh, it's inimitable like i i'm, I'm trying to think like because like the what what is like this now griffin it's like the safty brothers or whatever it's this thing where it's again it's yeah. sort of like the the sort of painful like you, you kind of feel for the person but you're also kind of churning and you feel kind of insane you just sort of feel like you know, like, I, am, am I watching something that isn't real? The Safdies have cited her as a, as an influence, right? Right. I mean, it makes perfect sense. The long sense. dialogue and the, you know, right, yeah. yeah. But, but I also just think, like, y- yes, yes, in comedy, no one really has the guts to go this 
hard, right? I mean, to keep you in these pressure cooker situations like this, to really funnel into the best and worst qualities of every character. Um, I, I think she's she is kind of a one-off. People took a lot of elements of what she did, but no one really has the courage to go full tilt and present it as a straight comedy, you know? Yes. Um, not not a thriller with comedic elements or something like that. It's it's as you said. It's like there are movies like you know, uh, uh, Uncut Gems or Goodfellas or you know any of these filmmakers like Scorsese and the Safties who use a lot of comedy in their films but are not thought of as comedic directors. I think these are all people who cite her movies a lot. But still, they're like, I'm putting those sensibilities into a crime movie or an action movie or a horror film or whatever it is to present it as like, here's a romantic comedy and then have unbroken four minute takes where you just watch a man destroy his standing in the <laughs> eyes of everyone else on camera. It's just, you know, as you're saying, for, you know, and as you're sort of the article you're citing is saying, like 99 people would just be like, he has to do it. They would be selling you on like. He's so in love. You're gonna be so in love. It's a whirlwind. It's crazy. Of course, it's a, you know. But like, he just has to do this, and you understand. And in this, when I'm watching this, I'm like, he doesn't have to do this. No, like, no. Like, and I have like my hands over my mouth, and that's ten times funnier. Yes. <sighs> yeah. No. And I mean, with talking about how much this film, I think, has to do with the Jewish identity in the '70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I, I watched last night um, the. American Masters that Elaine May directed uh, on Mike Nichols, which I think was a year or two after he passed. And people were asking if we were going to do that as a bonus episode. It's not bonus episode material. It, it, the it thing would be is weird. Very, it's weird. It's all about Mike Nichols. Like, it would just sort of be odd to try and, like, delve in. Anyway, go on. Go on. It's also, like, 80% all... Uh, a clips from one interview that Mike Nichols did, like right. one long form interview. It's really letting him in his own words tell a story. I think maybe the most the most interesting thing about about that uh, documentary is is the the idea and the fact that yeah, she finally got let out of you know movie jail to whatever extent that she was in it by choice or you know because mm-hmm. of the industry. And the reason was to do uh, you know a loving obituary of of the male partner. Yeah, right, like that's that's basically what you need to to talk about with that. I think. Well, and what I was going to say is really interesting about it to me as well is the section where he's talking about his relationship with her and their breakup and how they didn't really speak for ten years and all that sort of stuff. It's very fascinating to think of the choices she's making in terms of which clips to include hmm. and to not sort of let herself off of the hook on that here's an interview that he conducted with someone else years earlier now she's in an editing booth deciding which words to pass along as sort of like his obituary um but he talks about the fact that you know they go from being compass players to uh you know becoming national tv stars doing all these commercials going on broadway and they do this broadway run uh that's just a blockbuster i mean they mike nichols says like it is the only time in my life I have ever been part of anything that everybody liked. It was bizarre <laughs> right. and it was eerie. We never got a bad review. We never got a bad comment. It was everyone agreed that what we were doing was funny and we didn't understand why people were so impressed with it. That they very much had this attitude of these are the dumb skits that we were doing in a bar for five people for years. 
right. don't understand why people like them now. We find them somewhat charming, but why is everyone reacting this strongly? And Nichols' right. attitude to that was, this is amazing. I have it made. I have to work two hours a night. I do these things <laughs> right. with my best friend that I've done for years. I'm famous. Girls <laughs> like me. I'm rich. And Elaine May was like, I hate this. I want out. Hmm. I, and like, t- she was right, right? Like, because it, that she was instead, right. of, instead of them being the comedy double act that toured for years and then you know that mm. was their thing and eventually they got a little you know like new comedy emerged that they could not keep up with or what you know they went out of fashion they went out on top yeah kings as you say basically no bad reviews they basically Ever. invented an art form and then he was like Oh God! I feel like a piece of me is lost. I guess I'll be an acclaimed filmmaker who works right. for generations. And she's like, you know, obviously does not have his like soaring like chain, but also like they just go off and do incredible things separately. Well, it's so f- and then funny late in life they get back together. Right. They do a couple great movies. Yeah, it's yeah. just funny to me because I mean she's so much more press shy than he is right and she's sort of so unsentimental that even something like this ishtar q a which is one of her rare times doing a public appearance and talk about her work she gave so many monosyllabic answers answers right like she's not nostalgic she doesn't want to look back at her accomplishments and this sort of stuff and and nichols is uh, you know more conventional for someone with his level of success of being open to talk about all of his accomplishments and failures and what have you um but he really talks about as as you were joking david like him saying what am i going to do i'll become an acclaimed director but he really was like i was out for six years like i was a mess it was like the worst breakup of my life right it fucked him up she couldn't explain to me why she was ending this thing i resented it i didn't know what to do in my career i only stumbled upon the directing thing a couple years later and it was a godsend and she didn't really have a reason she was breaking it up other than i'm tired of doing something i know we can do yeah that's the thing it's like we've done this what more is there we've done this right right yeah it makes sense. Right. She married a guy. He felt very betrayed. They ended their relationship. And she just kind of went on the down low for a while. And he, you know, starts building up his reputation as this big director. But very much it feels like New Leaf was kind of people saying, like, Elaine May, shouldn't you make a movie by now? You know, I mean, she had a lot of free reign, even if they ended up pushing back more in the cut. But it was very much a thing where people are like, you should be a filmmaker, right? You're like this defining comedic voice. No, but it's not just that. It's like she's like, I, I guess, OK, all right, I'll make a movie. Who should be in it, though? And they're like, you should be in it, you maniac. <laughs> like, well, you're the star. Right. She was like, I don't want to be idiot. in it. And they're like, we won't make it unless you're in it. You're, <laughs> you're a star. You're That's the whole fucking idea. Right. So then you get to this movie and it's like Neil Simon, who's one of like the most successful humorists in America, is like Elaine May should direct my script. Right. She should be the one to do this. And she comes on and says like, well, but I know you're so particular and you put in your contracts that you can't change a word. My whole background is improv. I have a different sensibility. I want to do it my way. Can I shoot every scene two ways? Can I shoot every scene word perfect as you wrote? And then uh, once we have a good take of that. We'll do a run of it where I get to have the cast improv as they like. Basically, basically inventing the Judd Apatow method of filmmaking. Yes, right. And she essentially said, I'll do two complete cuts of the movie. We'll screen both of them and we'll see which one's better. And what happened was he agreed to that. She started doing it that way. And then when he stopped showing up to set, she just stopped shooting the, the Neil the, Simon The boring takes. one. The, the California Sweet version, essentially. Right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, what a legend. And, but then, but he did. He was, he was 
picky and fussy about lines being changed, right? Like I, I feel like I was reading about that that he was doing his usual sort of persnickety, like you know, I'm Neil Ta- Simon. He talked about this movie less than any other adaptation in his entire career because it's not his. It, right, it's an much. Elaine May film. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, it's funny because it's a good script. You know, if yeah. it if it's his script, which I think a lot of it is. And it has very funny. Neil Simon is like one of the most. Uh, he has aged worse than almost any <laughs> generational figure, right? Like, yeah, because yeah. we're talking about a generational figure. It's I not mean, just that just he was humongous. successful. Yes, right. No, but like a name brand onto himself. Right. And it was. I mean, it was almost a, a Neil Simon above a title was like Marvel Studios. I mean, it was just like. Right. This is home based. I know the types of actors who are in this, the types of directors. This is comfort food. It's going to be yeah. shot in Georgia. If it's right. not in a <laughs> big warehouse. Parking lot. The yeah. action is going to be rote, okay? But everything else. Uh, no, I mean, they always like, have yeah. second unit do those scenes. Right. But, yeah. But um, if you but he not was in, he was like a franchise, right? Yes, he really if it's was. not in yes. movie theaters, which it usually was every year, go to Broadway. He's got something on Broadway. Maybe he has right. a TV show going. Maybe you know, like he's got a new book out. Like, and it's always this. Anytime I watch a Neil Simon thing, or more, you know, you're kind of like, oh, you know, like it's that kind of a reaction usually. You're like, sure, uh-huh, yeah, you know, like, uh, like. There is a cost. It's it's how much do you dial into the causticness? Like the out of towners, mm-hmm. which I guess is one of the most iconic mm-hmm. Neil Simon movies. Have you seen the out of towners, Griffin? I'm assuming. Yes. yes. It, it it's to me like it's only really funny if you're like, oh, this movie hates these people. I'm watching a <laughs> right. movie punish people, and like. I'm not sure that's what that movie thinks. Like, you know, and that's sort of the, the weird balance with him. Like, I'm like, does he just hate these people or is this just like a gentle comedy of manners? Well, look, this is the other thing, right? Neil Simon falls into that tradition of the the Jew who wants to be accepted by the goys, right? Yes. There is a packaging of the Jewish mentality and the Jewish humor into a mode that is understandable to outside audiences is like, oh, that the Jew thing. <laughs> you know, but in a very, very cute way. I mean, if you look at the 60s and 70s are when like the Jewish sensibilities and comedy really start to come to the forefront. And you don't just have Jewish comedians who change their names and then work the Borscht Belt and now just do sort of like rote sort of uh, routines. You really have movies that are about the Jewish identity, right? And our place in American culture at large and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the the Woody Allen of it all is both like more caustic and more please love me. I, this is about me. This isn't about Jews. This is about me. Sure. And, it's more egocentric. Right. Yes. Right. And the Neil, the Neil Simon thing is just like, look, we're pretty wacky. Like, it's like this, like, <laughs> you know? whether whether it's the the whole things about a family whether it's about just the one character who's the odd duck out it's like what can you say we're smart alex to the extent maybe that if if this if it wasn't a jewish creative team every step of the way behind this film the the charles groden character would possibly be 
a horrible anti-Semitic caricature. Yes. Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. He's like a wife thief who's trying to pick off this blonde college student. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. You could present it as this like, what can he do? The, 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 the winds of love blow him in this direction. Or you could write, you could be like, this is a movie about a creepy predator who won't leave a woman alone. Well, that's uh, Elaine May's big takeaway is, no, this is a movie about a guy making a series of choices. I am not going to act like it's like, what can he do? He's stuck. It's like, this is right. a man who made a series of choices. The, the, yes. I mean, should we go through the plot, Griffin? Like, I mean, yeah. or just scenes that we like or like, you know, however no, you want to. I, I, mean, I think the, we should go through it. But, but you're right, Avery. This film is unique to have like all the key collaborators are Jewish, right? I mean, to say, like, Groden is actually Jewish. It's not a waspy actor playing Jew in a way that would have been horribly offensive, right? It's, it's like a Jewish director adapting a Jewish script that's adapted from a Jewish short story. Even the music is like Burt Bacharach, like a Jew doing pop, hmm. right? Doing easy listening. There's something to the authenticity of this, of not packaging the sort of... Um, the the waspy perception of of Jewishness for comedy and really kind of funneling into the the you know the fundamental thing which is just a, a people raised in a culture of grief and misery and worry right I mean th at the time like you read the 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 reviews of like people were like is this movie anti-semitic because because of the genie berlin character but it's that classic thing of like where they're like i don't get it this is too searing like surely this yeah. is just a caricature and i should be offended because they're like you know she's the kvetchy jew and he ends up with the uh, the shiksa you know like like isn't there something terrible going on here shouldn't i be outraged about this and like it's that that sort of surface reading of it that is, mm -hmm. I would say, off the mark. But there's that key line for me. It's in one of the scenes where he just said, like, my entire life, I thought someday I was going to end up in a place like this with a girl like you, you know? <laughs> and, and what he's saying is, I thought someday I'd be able to jump out of my, like, class sphere. I'd be able to be accepted by the goys. I can be one of the rich, beautiful, shiny people. I was I was reading a, a review on Letterboxd of... A New Leaf, where I think it was maybe Brad Pitt's review, saying that this that A New Leaf is as close as America can get to doing a British style class comedy, and that's a good take. Yeah, and it's there's a similar thing with with this movie. Like, yeah, it's about it's about, and again, I say this as a non-Jewish person, but uh, I you know. Obviously, I have absorbed a lot of American culture, uh, and that is there's a lot of Jewishness in that. And I also lived uh, one of my uh, partners that I was with for a long time is Jewish, and I lived with her family for a number of years. Um, uh, and I had blonde hair at the time, so I was I was her shiksa, um, and was <laughs> honored to be, um, but a transgender shiksa. So you know, uh, yeah, I, I played with the form, um, but. Uh, yeah, it's is that there's the whole movie is, yeah, this Jewish guy who even even like his last name versus Lila's last name, like he's Cantro yeah. and she's I think like Kaladni something like that. Like even his name is slightly closer to right, but Lila Kaladni is is Jeannie Berlin, right. and it's like. Her He's... name is sort of like, oh, like, oh, yeah. oh boy, Ellis Island didn't want to work on that one. <laughs> the the whole the whole movie, he's striving towards this non-Jewish 
version of of whiteness in America. And especially, I mean, especially the scenes in Minnesota where you see him like paired up against these like Viking people. But like, right. if you watch the two weddings, that first traditional Jewish wedding is so joyous. Like yeah. both the event himself it, itself and even him, he's happy in in the moments when he's traveling with Lila in the car and at the hotel stuff. When he's not getting annoyed by her and taking himself out of the moment he's 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 happy with her and which is not to say that i think jews should stay in their place and not strike you know i i don't think the movie's saying that i think that it's saying in this specific instance his particular striving out of that class and out of that cultural background is so is is bad for him as well as bad for the people around him and- and I do think that's part of the the Neil Simon more bottle pitch of it is like, what would the moral of the story be? You know, he he ends up at a dinner party where he's surrounded by wasps who are mm. like chatting about the weather and he's in hell. Like, I think that is Neil Simon's big joke, right? Or it's like, yeah, 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 you know, you want the, the nice Midwestern blonde lady. Yeah, well, OK, now you married her. Now what? You're going to sell like, you know, insurance. They're wasps and they're particularly evil. Like one of them sells insurance, but then one of them. Appears to be a tear gas manufacturer, which is one of my favorite <laughs> right? lines. Yes. Just Charles Gardner. Well, you know, there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of money in tear gas. Another guy <laughs> makes food to feed veal calves. Like it's just this sort of like banal evil that he's entered himself oh, into. But but as you said, it's like you you see his moments of frustration but also his moments of pure happiness look until at his face just look at it look at the best his fucking face until oh, the sorry. moment that civil shepherd steps in front of him and then he's ruined and it is just right. he from that moment on he becomes fixated on the idea of could i pull it off right, right. essentially the whole he thing. becomes right. fixated on could i pass could i assimilate into that culture could i have that type of wife that type of family go to those types of parties could i fit in and wear it comfortably and also my wife is 21 this girl is 20 she's got to be so much newer and fresher i know the reveal of Jeannie berlin only being 22 is so huge because you're just like she's not even 22 yet she's going okay, to she's be about to turn in 12 right. weeks but i'm like this fucker's trying to shave three years off the model <laughs> but the but that's he he only gets married as far as far as I'm interpreting these early scenes because he wants to have sex because it's 1972. Yeah, right. Right. And she's like, we should wait. Right. You know, like so. That's why he gets it's, married. It's also an absolute masterstroke on May's part that just there's almost no dialogue. They're married in like three minutes of the movie. It's like a look across a bar. It cuts to them spending a little time together under music. Then they're in bed and she goes, not until I'm married. And they're at the wedding. In a way, it's so much better than doing the fucking Fairly Brothers thing where you show someone who's really nice and then who suddenly like Dr. Jekyll mm. and Mr. Hyde becomes a monster. You're just only seeing his sort of horniness driving his perception of her jumping so fast in time until they're at the wedding that he's not even really noticing who this person is it's not that she revealed herself to be someone different it's like he wasn't even paying attention things happen so fast and the audience doesn't get the chance to really see who either of them are there is when they're doing that that quick courtship there's like uh, a vignette of them uh, at dinner and she's like laughing too hard and there's a, a second in which it annoys him and then he almost like shakes it off 
and right. then joins in laughing with her. And it's like you could I guess you could read it either as him shaking off like don't be don't be annoyed at this, just be like a normal person and find joy. Or it's him kidding himself and being like, no, you like this person. You're having fun because he wants to have sex with her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the just like, I guess if that's the one thing. Yeah. And he's but he's resigned to his lot, as you're saying, Griffin, where it's just like, right. yeah, fine. Right. You know, this is what you do. You go to and you go on honeymoon in Miami. OK. You, you sell baseball bats. Yeah. And then when Sybil Shepard razzes him, essentially does like a little yeah. flirt. As you're in my spot. He's just immediately like his whole like there's just a, a you know, a crack in the foundation of his, you know, and he's just like, well, wait a second. Like, I can get out of here. Like, is that yeah, an option? Wait, wait for a me? second. Am I am I allowed to be in a Neil Simon play? Like, can I be <laughs> the lead of Barefoot in the Park? I mean, she she appears in front of the sun. Like, it's like a halo around her. He can't see her because of uh, obviously she's just silhouetted and she looks like an angel. Right. Uh, yes. This is her second movie. I mean, she's only been yeah. in the last picture show, which she's, right. you know, right. she was this like beautiful ingenue. Like that, she's still right in that zone. Bog- Bogdanovich discovers her on a magazine cover in a supermarket. She's never acted before. He puts her in the movie and eventually, of course, leaves his wife and key collaborator for her. So there's also this like, I guess. Has has that become public at the time that this movie comes out? I mean, there's just an interesting mirroring of Sybil Shepard also being a real life Shishka who pulled a Jewish director who mm-hmm. always tried to model himself as more of a wasp away from his wife. Wow. I'm trying to see when it was official that I don't know though. I'd have to I mean, and obviously there's there's much that's been written on uh Peter McDanovich and yes. uh uh what you know you know uh, you must remember this just had the whole uh, mini series about it and all that, but uh, but my, Polly, my Polly point Platt, is just you can, you know, no, yes, go ahead. You, it, it's, it is fascinating that Sybil Shepherd holds a, a similar role in culture in the seventies as she yeah. does in this movie. I mean, she's uh, our culture like acknowledged that she's hot enough and gorgeous enough, and that smile is dazzling enough that you'll try to assassinate a political figure for her. Right. Right. Leave your wife for her. And yeah. if you're Bruce Willis, you'll wear a toupee for her. Oh, you God. know, you'll do crazy things if you're a man and Sybil Shepherd smiles at you. Should I go on a, a Sybil run? Maybe. Should I watch Moonlighting and, and re-watch Sybil? I've just started watching her sitcom. Uh, it's the best. It's, I mean, I loved it when I was a kid. It's free on Voodoo. Ooh. Um, it's weird that it's not on CBS All Access, and I wonder if that's... She said last, or like recently, that the show was cancelled because Les Moonves made uh, moves towards her and she shut him down, and so they cancelled the show, even though it was successful. And I wonder if, even like with him gone, there's some lingering like stuff at play. I don't know. I, I will that's say this, though, Avery. I, look, I'm always willing to chalk anything up to Les Moonves being a piece of shit, but I will additionally say... As someone who's been in a big sitcom hole for, like, the last two years, Hmm. the CBS sitcoms are weirdly the ones that are the hardest to track down by and large. I think there's just some weird, complicated rights things with a lot of those shows. Because a lot of them are just, like, they should be on somewhere, Hmm. the least of which should be CBS All Access. Well, you can watch it on on Voodoo, free with ads. I think... CBS did not make it, maybe. The Chuck, you know, uh, that's a Chuck Lorre show, and he does have yeah. his own sort of mini empire onto himself. 
look, how is it, Avery? How does it hold up? Because when I was a kid, I watched Sybil and loved it. I was like, I love these, you know, 40 something ladies who like drink <laughs> cocktails. And I had the biggest crush on Alicia Witt. Just oh like, my, I'm yeah, staggering oh, yeah. crush. Yeah, of course. Just the mean, sarcastic, like, what was she? A, a piano genius who never wants to have sex or whatever. Like, the, the coolest character in the universe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, God. there's some stuff. There's some stuff that's tricky. Like uh, in in the first episode, Alicia Witt says if her mother doesn't stop interfering in her sex life, she'll become a lesbian. And it's like it's a, <laughs> a threat. Um, hey, Chuck Laurie, baby. Yeah, obviously, there's some stuff Chuck that's Lurie. not great, but yeah, it's fantastic. You've got Corinne Christine Baranski, amazing, doing obviously. amazing work. Uh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised to use the term lesbian because obviously in the Chuck Lorre universe, he also uh, the uh, lesbian is synonymous with a half man. <laughs> yeah. Remember in the end of uh, Two and a Half Men when man, yeah. the the kid left, the little boy left, and they went, "How do we fill this gap?" There's a half man in the title, and so they added Amber Tamblin as a lesbian. I swear to God, I swear to you, yeah. that's what they did. I believe you. The, uh, season eleven here. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when Two and a Half Men just kept going? They just threw in Kutcher. <laughs> he was the just premise, like a guy. <laughs> the premise of the show was uptight dude and his son have their life crashed by reckless playboy brother. And by the 11th season, it was (laughs) uptight guy whose son has abandoned him to become a missionary and whose brother has been killed by a falling piano, lives with an oversexed tech billionaire who bought his house but let the guy move back in because he feels bad for him. And then his brother's long-lost, estranged lesbian daughter who he never met before. Yes, yes, yes. And then in this, in the last season, they adopted a boy. Did you know that? No. They adopted no. a six-year-old, I think, because maybe CBS is just So now like, it's three full men? <laughs> right, like, we need some right. juice. Uh, this show needs a kid again. They could just have a kid again, right? And they're like, yeah, sure, fine. He adopts three a men. kid. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that, that Audra Lindy was... Sybil's mom on the Sybil sitcom, mm-hmm. yes. yeah. who is her mother in this as well, which is cool. Yes. Uh, and, I mean, look, I'm going to rewatch Sybil, okay? I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to fucking it's, do it. It's four seasons. It ends on a cliffhanger. Um, so be wary of that. Is she going to get with Ira? I remember Ira. No, it's... um. Can I Can I, Can I? I spoil it? It's a funny Ira co- is her ex, right? Ira, that's right. who Ira is. Yes, right. No, the cliffhanger is she and Christine Baranski get arrested for murdering Christine Baranski's ex-husband. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. They got to bring... Christine Baranski's star has never been more powerful. Why doesn't she just be like, we're, we're doing it, guys. We're bringing Sybil back. I'm, it'll be well, on that- CBS All Access. Why not? That was also the other rumor about Sybil always was that it was like such a big, like, you know, concerted effort to relaunch Sybil Shepard's career. Right. And then Baranski just was the breakout, mm. is the one who wins the Emmys, became the breakout star, and that there was a lot of infighting on Supposedly. the show. I mean, Sybil has always Supposedly. been tagged as difficult. And of course, we always should take that at face value and ask no more questions. Because, uh, them, but, uh, She's a she's a fascinating, like beyond just like the stuff she's in. She's just a fascinating figure, as you're saying, Griffin. Yeah. Like you know what she's represented to different eras, 
and like and this is her earliest which is just like bombshell you'll you'll your right. your brain will explode like you were saying every you'll you'll fucking assassinate the president you'll you'll shave your head into a mohawk i guess and like last picture <laughs> shows about like these boys punching each other in the face yes. for two hours because they all want to fuck her well she, i mean yeah, she's very and the charming. director was like hmm this is a good idea <laughs> uh i mean honestly watching this movie i wanted to leave my girlfriend for Sybil Shepard. Yeah. you know if i could hop in a time machine and give it a shot i would it's also just such a like I I think it's interesting that she chose this. I I and I I don't say that in any sort of loaded way, but like Last Picture Show was such a sensation. She was such a breakout that I was having a hard time finding specific examples, but she apparently turned down a lot mm. in order to do this. That this was very deliberately, no, this is what my follow-up is going to be. And it's a movie that's all framed around her, but it's also sort of framed around the mythical idea of what she represents, you know? She does get to do a a lot for for such a seemingly shallow character. Like In the first half, not so much, but then... Not so much, yeah. yeah. But once you get to Minnesota, I was was reminded of, um, you know, the Garfunkel and Oates IFC show? They had an episode where they where they twigged that guys don't really listen to you. And I wonder how far into a relationship with a or a date with a dude you could get and not say anything and see, like, if they would notice and what they would project on you. And that there's a, a similar sort of vibe in the in the Miami scenes with, with Kelly. Right. She's not giving him anything no. except for a no. couple little flirts right at the start she's pretty much made the same joke twice you're on yeah. my stool you're in my spot right right because yeah she's she's 20 she's not actually like funny or interesting she's not lived <laughs> enough life no. to have anything to offer a 38 year old man to get to you know she's got to go to school she's figuring yeah, she's it got out english lit as well she's got english lit I mean, and Grodin is 36 when this movie comes out. He's 38? Yeah. You're right. Jesus. Yes, I did my math wrong. He's 38. Right. Grodin is is famously old. I know. That's the thing with it. You always underestimate how old he is. He's always older than you think he is. Yes. Because he's now like 85. Like he was born in the 30s. He's 85. Uh, he plays the doctor in Rosemary's Baby, and I remember seeing mm. that and going like, "That mathematically doesn't make sense." <laughs> right, this man was in Beethoven, and I swear he was a grown-up then too. Like that's the whole thing. Right, but you're also used to dads in movies like Beethoven being 38. That's what I'm saying. Like it's crazy that he's right. the yes, he's the OB in uh, Rosemary's Baby. So you can say, I mean, he's playing. He's probably supposed to read a little long, younger than he actually is in this movie, but still, he's supposed to be firmly a man in his 30s. He has a career not a job right bats and balls he's got some bats and balls yeah uh it's it's the same thing that ishtar does in its own weird way where it's just like she's really good uh, in just uh, establishing a lot very quickly through a lot Mm. of shorthand you know so you don't have to spend the 30 minutes waiting to get to the actual movie uh, you know, you can just dive into the characters through a lot of um, just kind of keenly observed behavior. But yes, I mean, the, the point with Shibble Shepherd is it comes under 15 minutes into the movie, right? 22. 22. Okay. Fair I enough. wrote it. I wrote it down. I took notes. Yeah. I was so excited to be on this podcast. So you essentially have like 10 minutes of like, you know, set up 10 minutes of her starting to annoy him. Mm. Right. And then and then the Shishka comes in. 
Shiksa. You, 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 Shiksa. It's incredible. I keep saying it wrong. I know. I have no. I, I've. It, I've just been. Um. I've. I've been really enjoying. You've said it in different ways, and it's really fun. Your restraint. I appreciate your restraint. Uh, I. I didn't. I didn't want to jump in and correct because I. I didn't feel it was my place. I mostly just kind of let it ride, but I mean, it, it's yeah. fun. Um. What I Jeannie Berlin. She's just emotionally amateur, right? Like, that's really the big yeah. diagnosis there. It's not like she's not a monster. She doesn't want to, no. you know, pee on him as Malin Ackerman does in the uh, Heartbreak Kid. Like, she doesn't <laughs> yeah. want to break his dick off or during no. sex or whatever. She's just like, a, you know, she needs some constant affirmation. She's just kind of annoying. Like, that's, the, that's her worst flaw. But also, like... It, it's she's immature but also she can sense that he's not into it and she's trying she's trying her best with the tools she has available to make the relationship fun again right she's drawing the circles on his chest he says i really don't like that and she goes okay i'll do squares instead <laughs> it's a good line Right, as opposed to it being revealed that, like, the wife is actually a secret, like, recovering meth addict who, like, (laughs) performed highway robbery or whatever. (laughs) Like, it's just so much more interesting this way. I mean, and her calling it PP, I need to go PP. Like, it's all these little things. I think to some degree it almost works metaphorically for, you know, as an adult when you have to reckon with after you've slept with someone. Hmm. And now there's a certain level of mystique that is gone, right? There's always that thing where, like, this person exists as this like oh my god oh my god and then you get to the other end of it and you're like the most vulnerable thing in the world has just happened the most revealing thing in the world has just happened and suddenly you're an actual human being you know i mean that that mystique thing like she there's a scene where they're getting ready to go out to the pool and she's teasing her hair trying to get her to look right and he's just looking at her like what are you doing this is insane and it's like yeah when you're married to a person you see all the things that they have to do to maintain the image that you were attracted to right, and right. it it can it can ruin it sure yeah you're and and being an adult is learning to like appreciate that person as a full real person yeah but he's a guy who is just constantly obsessed with the idea of what if i could have this kind of life this kind of person this kind of this and so yeah when when she meets him it's it's done for right uh she comes back Says, who are you talking to? He says, nobody, right? <sighs> These scenes are so tough. They are. That's what yeah. I was thinking of, like, the Safties or whatever. Like, the the slightly, you know, every time he's essentially finding ways to keep her quarantined while he explains why he has to go out or why the dinner reservation is at nine. The like, best thing I could do for you is, is leave you alone. <laughs> <laughs> Just crawling in my skin. That's what I was going to say. It's like another wild thing about this movie is like, I feel like anytime we talk about like studio comedies, I, I talk about my frustration with movies where just like characters don't solve things quick enough, where dilemmas go on for too long, where lies are maintained for too long. And it's because they don't want to resolve the conflict of the movie. But instead you get into this thing where you're just like, this strains credibility. How can they still be caught up on this? And it's like, okay, so the the, the suntan thing happens, right? he's telling her to put on the sunscreen. She has to stay in for a day, yes. Right, right. So I was going like, is this movie really going to have it be like eight days of her being so sunburnt? And instead, it's just like, no. He realizes the sunburn pass is fading, so he starts making just such un... There is no need for his lies to be this big, right? Yeah. 
And his instinct at every turn in this movie, when confronted with a problem, is to lie. He, yes. he he triples down. And always with a very big lie. He ne- right. right. He never is like tries to sort of dodge or he just like runs straight at it, which is why the Eddie Albert scenes are so incredible. Because Eddie Albert's like, I hate you and won't stand to talk to you. And I like, see what you want. Right. Yeah, right. right. But they're just these colossal unsustainable lies you know I just love that the movie doesn't give him the out of like he comes up with a little fib and then he gets caught it's like no he somehow keeps getting away with it but how well because I mean there's there's the moment where he's saying you know I was in this horrible car wreck and Gene just looks at him and says were you really in a car wreck Lenny yeah this is the scene that murders me right it is to borrow from the title it's heartbreaking because yeah. to even if you if you love someone to even get to a place where you have to ask that of them either you think they're lying to you or you suspect they're lying to you and you think you're about to do a horrible insult to them to ask them that she's yeah. she's dealing with so much and you can see it all in her face and the line reading and the the time that's taken on that and then, yeah, immediately he quadruples down and says, call the patrolman that call- that pulled me out of the car. <laughs> he picks up the phone. <laughs> the way he uses his military service oh. as a card oh. <laughs> anytime he can. But it's also like he does. It's one of those moments where he takes a classic Charles Grodin pause. And you look at him when she says, did you really get in a car crash? He looks at her for a little while before he starts going, are you questioning me? And you see in his eyes that he's like, I could be honest at this moment or I could triple down again. Yeah. You see him doing the math. God, he's he's so good. He's so good. He's the fucking king. I love him so much. He never, I guess, all right, okay. Can we talk about him for a second? Let's do a little Grodin career corner. Because he's barely been in anything before this. He's in, he has a small role in Catch-22, which is a Mike Nichols movie. Maybe that is how Elaine may notice this. You know, no idea. You know, as you say, he has a small role in Rosemary's Baby. After this, he writes a movie called Eleven Harrow House that he's in, never seen, which I think is like a sort of like funny thriller. It's like a... Okay. They're all in a house full of traps, and it's got Candace Bergen and James Mason. Honestly, it sounds pretty fucking good. Uh, yeah, um, that sounds uh, rad as hell. <laughs> yeah. And then he's in the King Kong remake. He's like right, the right. second lead of that. He's he's kind of the, the Jack Black, right? The, yes, the, exactly. Yeah, he, yes. Um, yeah, he's the mogul. Yeah. Right. And then, I mean, I guess he, you know, he's in that Marlo Thomas movie, Thieves. He's in... Uh, mm-hmm. something called Just Me and You with Louise Lasser. But I feel like then he's just like, once he's in Heaven Can Wait, which Elaine May writes, obviously, for Warren Beatty, which he's hysterical in. Like, that's mm-hmm. just a top-drawer comedy supporting performance. That's when he's just like, oh, yeah, this is what I should do. I'll just do this. Like, r- real life. I mean, oh, God, he's so funny in real life. Ishtar, he's he's got that small role. Oh, Ishtar is incredible in. Yes. Yeah, he's so good in Ishtar. Uh but but I think to some degree that was not uh, by choice. I mean, I, I remember a couple of stories about Charles Grodin that are seared my head. There are a few, there's a few sort of basically bombs in a row here. Right. 
I, I know he was like an acting school classmate of Gene Wilder. And there's the story that Gene Wilder always tells where they would sit around and talk about their dreams for their careers, wanting to be leading men. And Charles Grodin just said to him in his very Grodin way, like you imagine it was with the tone of one of his Letterman performances where he's like, Gene, come on, you're not going to be a movie star. <laughs> right. And he was like, what? And he was like, look, I mean, come on, you're a great actor, but look at you. I mean, you can't hide the Jew on your face. Look at that hair. Your name's Gene Wilder. It's not going to happen, Gene. I mean, I could pass. You know, I'm a Jew, but I could pass, right? Which is so much of his persona to begin with. But he very much was like, I think I'm passing enough to be able to work as a mainstream comedy leading man. I'm conventionally handsome enough, all that sort of stuff. And then I think he was very kind of quickly tagged with that guy doesn't have the box office juice. He's a little too caustic. He's not charming. He's never going to cross over. But what happens is a lot of people like Warren Beatty are like, that guy's the funniest guy in the world. But and and he's funny as a stiff like this. I can make I can cast this guy as an uptight square and it's going to murder like it's going to be so good so the people who have good taste like albert brooks and warren Beatty, you know the muppets they all go like right please please groden come in here play the heavy play the asshole play the deadpan best friend come in and be the fourth or fifth lead just give us your funny and he sort of coasts on that for a while of just like his standing is so good with so many of the most important people in hollywood that he's never lacking for work but it feels like he has a little bit of resentment of the fact that he never became the guy right and he's like oh he's playing the part in the steve martin movie he's playing the part in the gene wilder movie right i mean it's always sort of like incredible shrinking woman it's all these people like Lily Tomlin who were like right keeping him in rotation and then Midnight Run happens and Midnight Run is like you hear all these stories about just they wanted anyone but him it was uh, De Niro was the one who suggested it to Brest and was like that's the funniest guy in the world this would be funniest with Grodin and Brest agreed and they just fought for it so hard they wanted Robin Williams they wanted Cher I mean if you read the 20 people they wanted for that part instead and they just kept Doubling down, doubling down, doubling down until finally they were just like, fuck it, cast Charles Grodin, see if we give a shit. These things go down. They go down. That's my favorite line reading. I, the best. Yes, I, he's the best. I want to watch that movie right now. I just watch it two about times it. a year. <laughs> yeah. But then it's right. Like that That happens in 1988, right? Then in the years in between that, he does Cranium Command, which is a Disney World ride. He does Taking Care of Business, which yeah, is a fucking Belushi. Belushi, a James Belushi I know. vehicle. Second build to Jim Belushi. No offense, but yeesh. And then, and then he does Beethoven. And now it's like for the first time, he's like the single name above the title. It's a big hit. He has cachet and he's like... I guess this is who I am. I'm a fucking dog movie guy. <laughs> and he cashes out on that. For a couple years. For not that long. And then, then he's like, fuck it, I'm out. And then fucking is just like, right, I'm going to get really into like law and hosting a late night news show. I mean, do you remember that he had like a CNN show? Uh, no, it was on the CNBC. And he was oh, like, man. he was like tagging in on 60 Minutes 2, which was like the... The like side series to 60 minutes where they put the stuff that couldn't make the main show or whatever. And he was like, movies are bullshit. I'm going to be all about prison reform. (laughs) And then like he just kind of like came back recently 
and it's yeah. like, oh, he's still great. He's still so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, even though, I mean, like some of the stuff, like in The Comedian, he plays like Chevy Chase. Have you seen mm-hmm. the, the great film, The Comedian? No. Uh, like he's like the preening uh, asshole comedian who's a big star and like wants everyone mm-hmm. to kiss the ring. He, that movie stinks. He's really good in it. He's always good. He's so good while we're young. While we're young, he's incredible in that. Where he's like essentially playing Wiseman, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, he's sort of playing like, or one of the Maisel brothers. Right, like an old documentary, you know, yeah. uh, honcho legend. Yes. But but he just didn't act for 12 years and was like, I don't care. I mean, th- he just has this attitude, but he also talks about it in a way where it feels like he does wish he had gotten to do 10 movies like sure. this, you know? He's just always good. He's always good. Always funny. And if you go through his career, you're like, oh, I forgot he's. There's always something where you're like, ah, fuck, I Dave. forgot he's in this. He's incredible he's in Dave. So Balances the good budget. In Dave. He's uncredited in Dave. We thank, thank you, Charles. I don't think he's uncredited. <laughs> he has that amazing line where he's looking at the books, <laughs> yeah. and he says, like, if if I did my taxes this way, you'd put me in jail. Yeah. He's very <laughs> funny, very deadpan. Dave. Yeah. It, it, that scene is the kind of the best scene in Dave, it, like in its whole sort of like fantasy. It's very. I love Charles Grodin. I love him in this movie. This movie does not work without him. Can I say his his performance in this movie? There are there are so many moments where I saw a lot of Jim Carrey in him. If that makes sense, or I mean mm. the other way around, like the way yeah. Yeah, his yeah, yeah, yeah. he juts his lower jaw out at times, and like the gesticulating with his arms. And right. like, yeah, that scrambling yeah. to maintain a, a lie or something. And I think the, there's a certain smarmy arrogance, mm. you know, it's it's not like the so often these types of characters are played with, by guys who are just so unabashedly charming and cute in their personality that you go like, ah, but I can't hate him. And I feel like Carrie also, like people, when Carrie started making movies, people were like, you can't do this. You can't make a character like Ace Ventura for the entire movie who never resembles a normal human There's no such thing as a pet detective. Right. Uh, (laughs) But also just like he was so committed to like, I'm just playing an asshole or an idiot. You know, there was no concern for being likable. He has no vulnerability in terms of that. He's right. He's happy to lay it out. And that's why scenes like him, you know, rushing to pick up the phone to say, like, call the patrolman, like, work. Because yeah. he's he he can be a monster in that moment. And that's why scenes like the one that is my background, where he goes to the mm-hmm. magic show to try and impress the family, which is just this, like, mind-bogglingly awkward scene, are just hysterically funny. Like, even as they're so crazily awkward. It's funny, too. Like, Eddie Albert entirely deserved Academy Award nomination. Essentially has two big dialogue scenes, right? A lot of the movie, he's just kind of sitting there in silence, stewing and glaring he, at this He's guy. looking grumpy. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's, it's absolutely so fucking good, though, in those two scenes where he finally uncorks the bottle and is like, mm. let me give right. you a whiff of this. <laughs> just you really think that there's like water in here and there's sulfuric acid. You're not yes. picking up what I'm putting down, buddy. But he's also I mean, you know, the mother is kind of just like clueless, charmed by everything. Right. She falls for the sort of performative bullshit that Groden's putting on. I think Sybil Shepherd just kind of enjoys him like a toy. I mean, it's such a good reveal when he shows up at her college and she's just like, I care more about class than yeah. you. What are you 
like doing you here, were like right? an activity on a vacation. Yeah, you're like a bit I did. Yeah. Right, but but Albert is just staring him down every single moment. Uh and and just, you know, he's getting dragged along to all these things. You're wondering why he's tolerating this guy being let into every activity the family goes on. I mean, he 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 loves his his daughter so much and like to I mean, I think I think too much I in the in the final argument between between him and Yeah, Grogan, he becomes he... the sort of protective dad in a kind of annoying yeah. creepy way. Right. And yeah, he says like Groden says I just want Kelly and the dad says so do I and you know the fact that it cuts to the wedding right after and you wonder what happened in between that I like in that moment I sort of think like is he realizing like oh I'm too attached to her yeah. it's, you know I'm not going to like anyone she gets with it might as well be this guy. I mean, like, she wants to marry him. It's like, how much yeah. can you, like, you can't lock her in chains, I guess is what the, the but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think the thing with the Eddie Albert character, too, is she's as much of a status symbol for him mm. as she is for Groton, right? She fits into the dynamic of, look at me, I have the perfect house, I have the perfect daughter, right. you know? At the wedding, there's there's this old guy that comes up to Groton and says, you're you're the luckiest man alive. There's even when she's on college campus, like random men walking past her are like, hey, Kelly, like it makes sense because Sybil Shepherd is so luminous in this movie. But like, yeah, she must there, there must just be dozens of men, hundreds of men in her life who all want her. And yeah, that reflects on the dad. Right. Right. He he wants people to be turning their heads when his daughter walks by. He just doesn't want to welcome those people into his family. Yeah. He doesn't want those people to have more domain than he does. You know, he is just one of those stars that is incredible. Like, like, do you know Eddie Alberts? Like, because like when he's in this, he's weirdly at a career high because he's just he's coming off of Green Acres, which was right. like a you know a hugely popular sitcom. And I get because because when I think of Eddie Albert, apart from this, I think of Roman Holiday, right? Which like mm-hmm. and like. In like Oklahoma, like he used to be, I think of him as fun and like kind of goofy and this sort of high yeah. energy actor. And then I get, but, and so I was trying to figure out like, how does he get cast here as this like stone man, like this just absolute <laughs> bastard. But I forgot that in Green Acres, he's kind of this, I've never, I've never really seen Green Acres. I just know it's about like big city people who live on a farm, it, right? It, it bizarrely was Romilly's favorite show growing up. So I've hmm. seen a lot of is Green Acres. My sister was pig? all in on Green Acres. Did I make that up? No, there is a pig, but the pig doesn't talk. You're conflating it with Mr. Ed. That's right. Okay, yeah. right. But like, but in Green Acres, is he kind? He's kind of the stiff in that, right? Because he's like he the big doesn't like it. Man. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. the stiff because she's like silly, but she's more charmed by everything going on around her. Even if she's like, I could never. He's more like grump. Yeah, it's it's fucking six seasons of them just not wanting to run a farm. That's the premise. <laughs> I know. Okay. Can you just can you just imagine Romley just sitting glued to the television, <laughs> putting on like disc after disc of Green Acres because it wasn't even on rotation anywhere. We had to buy right, her all the not DVD on Nick sets. At night. They, they, no one's gonna like no. watch that in the nineties, right? This- this is in the mid 2000s. She's born right. in 1998. Yeah. This is in the early to mid 2000s. She's watching Green Acres all day. And my mom, I just remember once us walking into the living room. She's sitting there an inch away from the television, watching her tenth episode in a row. <laughs> and my mom just goes, "Why was it this show? <laughs> it has a pig. 
It has a peg. She liked that that Eva Gabor was fancy. I think my fa- my favorite thing about Eddie Albert is that Albert is his middle name. His last name was Heimberger, hmm. and he uh, changed mm. his name from Heimberger because everyone called him Eddie Hamburger. Uh, he also <laughs> used, he also used to be a trapeze performer, a nightclub wow. singer. He like co-hosted a radio show. He served in the war as like a military intelligence officer who like photographed Jeez. U-boats. You know, it's like one of these things where like you would read in a obituary of a guy who was born in like you know 1902 and you it's like it would just be like the most staggering series because like he lived through modern history and like this guy fucking rules i love him he died at the age of 99 too wow he was the voice of the vulture on the spider-man cartoon show he's the warden in the longest yard like he's just in everything he's in the witch mountain movies like, you just talk about a guy who, like, he's at Concord, the Concord Airport, 78. Like, these are just his post-Heartbreak Kid credits, which is essentially the beginning of the last chapter of his career, which lasts for another 25 years. I mean, respect. Full respect to Eddie Albert. Should have as, won? No, I guess not. But whatever. Great Oscar nomination here, late in life. As much as he's the stickler in this, he... he does get this great physical performance moment when uh, Groden has been invited to the boat the next day by Kelly and Albert sees him approaching and tries to runs to get the rope and push the boat off before Groden can get onto it. I think that's a very it's a very fun silly moment. Yes. The speed with which Groden runs to the boat (laughs) while also pulling his shirt off so he can land on the boat and be in I belong here mode, you know? But but here's another thing that I just forgot that this movie does so well, where which is he tells Sybil so early on. It's like their mm. third scene right. together. It's not a secret. Yes. No. They're in the water, right? And then she walks away and he says, I have to tell you, I'm married. And I went, is this going to be some dumb thing where because of the wave she doesn't hear him? Mm. And instead she comes back and she's like, oh, interesting. She says, "What what else is new? Right, because she's trying to play this weird Blythe kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm having fun on vacation. Yeah. Right, so it becomes, oh, he has to convince the parents and he has to figure out what to do about his wife. But I just love that, like, that's halfway through the movie. And it's like, so now he has to be upfront with her because he really wants to end this and he has to win over the parents. It's not going to be 90 minutes of him coming up with new excuses to keep her in the room and lying to Sybil Shepard, you know? Mm. Like, I just think there's a thing with older film comedies where they don't feel like, well, whatever the premise is can be the only premise for all of the running time. You do whatever the conflict is until you've run out of juice or it's strained credibility, and then you move on to the next thing that would happen, and then that becomes the next conflict, right. you know? And and the scene, just the fucking pecan pie scene, him trying to break the news to her, all his wind-up, all his, like, buffering before he gets to it. Which she thinks she is thinks him. He's dying. Right, <laughs> right, right. And there's that beautiful shot where, like, she's consoling him. His head's down. He feels relieved. He's finally gotten through to her. She says, "I can't believe you never told me you were sick and dying." And then he just slowly looks up and barely avoids making eye contact with the camera directly. <laughs> and he just cannot even hold his contempt for her and just says, "Like, I'm leaving you. It's it's over. Yeah, the marriage is over." 
there's a moment where you're like, oh, is the movie going to be him faking his death? And then he's right, like, I, right. no, I'm too, right, essentially arrogant <laughs> to let that happen. Yes. <laughs> it just it just avoids all the things you you worry it's going to get stuck doing. Well, and then know? that scene where Elaine May's like, by the way, we're not leaving this. Like, yeah. you know, where he's not saying I'm leaving you and then we're going to cut away to him packing right. his bags. Nope. Five more minutes, guys. Put him on the clock. <laughs> Jeannie Berlin doesn't like this news. FYI. Now, remind me, does does the the Eddie Albert scene happen before or after that, where he before. comes clean to them? Before. Yeah. Right, because he says, I'm going to tell them at drinks, and then I'm going to take her out to dinner. There, There's that great moment, too, where he like comes back from having spent the whole day with the tan, changes into the shirt and tie immediately, is leaving again. Yes. And has he's like, oh, I'm taking you to dinner, 9 o'clock. <laughs> Right, right. And she's like, how, how did you get that tan? And he's like, I've been sitting on the lousy courthouse steps. How fast do you think the law moves in Florida? After yeah. he's previously told her that courts in Florida open yeah. at 7 a.m. Right. And he's got to go there the morning after a car crash. And just the insincerity of every time acting like, I'm doing you a yeah. favor. You don't want to be, you have no idea this what these so courthouses are like. You don't want to hang out with this army guy, the language that's going to be. I wouldn't go to this neighborhood if I could <laughs> avoid it. You know, just everything is always like, I, I love you so much. I can't make you do this. But then, yeah, the, the fucking, the Eddie Albert thing of just, what's his immediate line he says uh, in response? I'm looking here. Um, well, whatever it is, it's the end of that scene where, you know, he says his his fucking stay away from her. I don't hand out my daughter to newlyweds. He goes on his whole speech. Uh, so and then like Lenny says, like, so you don't approve. And he says, not if they tied me to a horse and pulled me 40 miles by my tongue. And Charles Grodin's response is, I respect your frankness. <laughs> it's so goddamn good. It's so funny. <sighs> Here's a yes. here's a weird a weird runner that I know just off just off that scene. One of his responses to the new Luet thing is he's a nut, um, and he you know it's just said perfectly. But also earlier on, Sybil eats nuts at him with the bar and says thanks for the nut. And then earlier on in the movie, uh, Lila when she's eating the egg salad, she uh, she goes, "I'm an oh. egg salad nut," and it's just. I don't know. Nuts keep popping up in this movie. If someone wants to do a TV tropes like deep dive cinema sins on his trailers, what does the nut mean in terms of of Heartbreak Kid? I'm I'm here for it because I wrote it down and I circled it on the page. They're a bunch of nuts. I don't know. This movie's chock full of nuts. Uh, you remind me, Avery, of the other just kind of like amazing uh, uh, directorial trick of this movie is just how good Elaine May as the is at the comedic reveal through edit mm. where how long she stays on Charles Grodin's face before cutting and showing us the uh the cottage cheese around her mouth uh not cottage cheese what what is it what is, egg salad egg salad and uh the same thing with the suntan you know like in all those scenes you understand that she's done something that she looks horrible and she holds off on cutting to Jeannie Berlin for as long as she possibly can. So it just builds in your mind until you get to the reveal. Um, but yeah, I just love that, like, you know, he he has these two horrible, disastrous conversations, right? With the father and then with his wife. And then just cuts to him in New York mm. signing the papers, 
trying to own up to his mistakes, right? Yep. This is my mistake I made. I have to own it. And then he just, like a lunatic, just flies to the Midwest. Doesn't yep. even get any cold weather clothes, which New York no. gets cold. He yeah. should have access to to something, but he's constantly walking around Minnesota with his just his like what sport coat like yes. pulled up around his neck and his flat cap just freezing. But the joy that like, oh, this movie isn't going to give us 30 more minutes of comedy of misunderstanding and him trying to keep the lie spinning. The movie is now this guy has done another incredibly reckless thing, has gone all in. He's pot committed to this relationship. And now the rest of the movie is 30 minutes of him trying to convince everyone to let him into the door through the door, you know. And it's funny. It's very, funny. very funny. I mean, are almost funnier or at least it's it's a thing where like she. It, it, it's a perfect pivot. Like, I don't know. Like I, I enjoy this section, but I also just enjoy it as this weird, fresh fish out of water nightmare thing that's happening. Yeah. And he's so like guileless about it. He's just like, I'm ready. I'll wait. I'm fine. I'm going to do this. I said, I'd do it. So I did it. Right. Right. Stalking her on campus. That moment where he's hiding behind a tree and then pops out at her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It also just underlines how much you're just like, you're in like an entirely different generation than mm. her. You know? Absolutely. Like now you're seeing her amongst her own people. You know? Like the boy she should be dating and you're a creepy old guy hiding behind structures. He's he's almost twice her age. Yeah. Like the the of course the dad's gonna be Albert's gonna be upset enough even without the newlywed stuff and 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 he's who is he he has no money because yeah. he gave it all to the woman he just divorced uh he sells athletic goods and... everything everything about him gets across that you know he talks about himself as a determined young man and he is in the sense that he's determined to do to get out of things like yeah, he did yes. three right. years in the army, yes. didn't go overseas because of a minor back injury. Like <laughs> he's work he works incredibly hard at, at getting out of his commitments. Yes, he's he's bullheaded, just right, entirely uselessly. But just the beauty of like he finally kind of wears Sybil Shepherd down. They have that scene that is one of the uh, a griff pick for top ten sexiest scenes in the history of cinema. Yes, Elaine May distilling exactly what I find sexy. Also, crazy like the last picture show has an iconic undressing scene right the, on the yeah. on the. Um... Diving board. She goes to the yeah, the, yes, the, nude the nudist party. party. Right. Yes, and then and, yeah. and then one year later, I mean, like, what what does Sybil Shepherd do after this? Because I do, I can't, I have to imagine she was like, I have to stop being a fucking ingenue. But I guess no, because the next movie is Daisy Miller, which is like the ultimate ingenue. Right. Then she becomes, uh, yeah, exactly, uh, Bogdanovich's mule, uh, mule. Jesus Muse. Christ! I wish she became. I wish. Peter Bogdanovich would make the mule, the mule too. Wow. Lady mule. Oh, but wait, but it's like, but it's Bogdanovich and he's a dandy. He's got like a. No, no. Bogdanovich directing. Sybil is the mule. <laughs> I mean, Bogdanovich also plays the drug king. That thing. would be fun too. I just like the idea that Bogdanovich is a drug mule and he, he, um, you know, his cover story is that he's always driving to the next a DVD special feature that he has to tape 10 minutes for. <laughs> Right. And that's why he has the cravat. And he's like, officer, I'm so sorry. I just I have to go. I need to, you know, give my perspective on, you know, the magnificent Ambersons. Like, I just have to go. I remember Orson said to me, 
It's such a good title, you shouldn't even make the picture. <laughs> That's his paper moon story he always tells. That he said, he said, Orson, I don't know what it's about yet, but I have an idea of a title for a picture. What do you think about a picture called Paper Moon? And Orson said, it's such a good title, you shouldn't even bother making the picture. I just I, imagine them both in like smoking jackets on yes. like a clear table just covered in cocaine. <laughs> One of those glass tables. So I'm oh, I'm, I'm flipping the pitch. It's Sybil Shepherd directs Peter Bogdanovich wow. in the mule. That sounds too. great, right? And Bob, that sounds good. Yeah, P- Peter's the mule. Um, mm. uh, I I just think the mule should turn into one of those like wait there are eight Jarhead movies direct to video franchises <laughs> where each time right. it's a different <laughs> octogenarian free Alaska actor, right? <laughs> But increasingly, it becomes people like Peter Bogdanovich, where it's like, well, he can't be the lead of a studio movie. We can, yeah, right? You know, the Mule Four. He could. We, we, we can film in Bulgaria and pretend it's set in uh, Rodeo Drive. You know, right. Mule Day of the Soldado. I want Mule oh. Day of the Soldado. Oh God, yes, uh, guys, this is great. We're we're gonna be billionaires. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're putting it on uh, the slate. Blank check pictures, our first franchise, but. Uh, but yes, this the scene, the dinner scene, right? You have this incredibly sexy scene where unlike the last picture show scene, it is cloaked in absolute darkness. You see less than nothing, right? right. And it's just about this promise of they're not going to touch. They're going to get as close to each other as possible without touching. And they do so. And it is uh, so thrilling. And then she brings him over for dinner and he does his fucking thing. I'll just quote the part of it. Uh because uh, this was my backup if I couldn't find the full long uh, intro I wanted to do originally. Sure. Um, uh, he says, this is honest food. There's no lying in that beef. There's no insincerity <laughs> in these potatoes. There's no deceit in the cauliflower. This is a totally honest meal. And he's framing it as like my entire life I've wanted an honest meal. I finally found honest food. And then it's almost a hard cut to them walking into the office, closing the door behind him, and Eddie Albert saying, during dinner tonight, I was listening. I find that I can tell more about a man by listening to his dinner table conversation than by reading all the books in the world. I heard everything you said about honest food. And Charles Grodin is like nodding excitedly like he's He's nailed it. fucking yeah. landed this yeah. and then just the delivery on i have never heard such a crock of horseshit in my life there's no deceit now. in the cauliflower i mean the fact that he's he's praising the honesty and integrity of these two we, yes. we've spent the whole movie watching him lie yeah he loves <laughs> deceit this is a good point. It's really the only tool he has. That's really the the entire Swiss Army knife for yes. him. <laughs> yeah. Even even like when he's trying he's getting rid of the the boyfriend at the at the college, Sybil's boyfriend, and he's like, "Well, obviously I'll pretend to be a federal narcotics agent." <laughs> and like somehow has a fake badge that we have no explanation for. It's a great question. Like, there's probably a whole prequel to this movie about like what, uh, uh, how he sells his athletic goods and probably mm. like, he deploys all kinds of underhanded tactics. Mm. As a veteran, I want you to purchase <laughs> right, this exactly. wiffle ball bat set. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe maybe the badge is is left over from the army somehow. Right, right, right. Oh my god, 
Uh, but yeah, but he but he pulls it off. Like you said, we have that hard cut from you know, like to him, like whatever. He convinces him, or that he he breaks down the wall, I guess. And then he's trapped in his like time enough at last Twilight Zone ending right. of like I got to be around wasps for the rest of my life. I got to have these what fucking are conversations. People walking out of the theater to that, yeah. like what? Are the, <laughs> I, I mean, because this movie was a comparable hit compared to like everything else she made. But you compare this, I mean, th- this movie is such an interesting parallel to The Graduate, right? Like, it's it's the second Nichols film, it's the second May film, it's a breakthrough for both of them, but then their directing careers obviously go in very different directions. And yeah. Graduate was not just a hit, it was like a cultural phenomenon and like an Oscar darling. And this was more of like a, a, a hit, you know, uh, and, yeah, but and nothing liked. crazy. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I do think it's like as much as people talk about like, holy shit, the ending of The Graduate, when you see him looking off there and realizing there's something kind of easily digestible about it. Right. I saw mm. a quote. I don't know if it was in the Bright Wall Dark uh, Room piece I've I been citing or another one I read, but saying that like. You know, as opposed to Neil Simon, who makes comedies that go down easy, Elaine May makes movies that get stuck in your throat, you know? Mm-hmm. And there is just such a difference to the tone of this ending of, oh, and now this is the first day of the rest of his life versus that exact same type of ending in The Graduate, which is underscored with, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and feels kind of like sweet and self-pitying rather than an existential nightmare. It's, it's kind of a who knows what right. next. Like, uh, you know, are they scared? Are they uh, like regretting? Are they, you know, yeah, like, you know, it, it's much more ambiguous. This is he's in hell he's trapped in a glass case like and he can never escape until i guess he tries again and he's thinking of lila like he's humming yes he's humming uh why do birds or yeah. whatever mm-hmm. one, one of their tunes yes and like yeah this is a man who we know once he gets himself cemented into a situation immediately wants out of it and is it's you know is thinking of the greener grass on the other side, yeah. and yeah, he's got to be thinking, oh, I I messed up. I gotta I gotta get back with Lila somehow. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, this movie just rules. It's fucking perfect. And then it's yeah, good movie. Good movie. It it feels like she could have had an easy career path trying to do this kind of thing again, right? Be one of America's foremost wit directors right. you right. know witty director like do the do some neil simons do right get yeah, a best-selling right. paperback you know yeah uh, that, right, you know right. uh, just movies for the sort of hoi polloi the you know the right. chattering classes or and it right. feels like the same way she was just like i've done that i don't really want to do that again you know cassavetes loves this movie he's the one who reaches out to her and is like i want to right. do something together and so that's the thing that excites her more is doing something entirely different whereas groden i think really wants to keep doing this and can't find as good of a match at least for him as a leading man artistically at, yeah no who let him right yeah right um he, he had to wait until he met this curious saint bernard i mean that was the he finally found the right collaborator again finally uh so i saw people tweeting about this a couple months ago when we knew that we were going to uh do this episode uh and i still can't get the exact straight answer uh, but okay. as to why this film is so out of circulation, there there was a DVD hmm. that was already out of print by the mid 2000s. Like I remember, yeah, that's my, the DVD I bought on eBay. It's right. an Anchor Bay DVD, and it sucks. The transfer is awful. 
It's from it like 2000 shit. even. It was only in print yeah. for like a year. Like even I, when I, my one semester of film school before I dropped out Charles Grodin style of anything that <laughs> gave me too much pressure. Uh, <laughs> I remember a student organized screening of this movie on a projector from a DVD. And it was a big deal because they were like, we got a copy. No one can see this movie. Like this movie is so hard to find the DVDs go for so much money now. And then mm. that was now, you know, whatever, 15 years ago almost. And uh, it's only become more difficult. It never was re-released. It was never on Blu-ray. It, I think, was on Netflix for like a weird period of like two months in like, you know, 2010. And then now it'll pop up on YouTube. It'll get pulled, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's mostly sort of traded. Uh, and by all accounts... It is that it was produced by Palomar Pictures, and I don't understand why this movie ended up in a more complicated fate than the other Palomar movies, but Palomar was a, a subsidiary of ABC. Uh, sure. And then before Disney bought ABC, uh, Bristol Myers acquired a majority stake, the pharmaceutical company. Okay. And they... Just every time apparently anyone has tried to re-release this movie, you know, I'm sure Criterion's tried, everyone's fucking tried, the asking price they throw out is just absurd. Because they're just like, this is how much money we make selling pills. Hmm. We're not a movie studio. We have ended up with these rights. You know, there are other Palomar movies, like they shoot horses, don't they? The birthday party, take the money and run. Sleuth. That I know are like, you know, but but taking Pell 1, 2, 3, the original Stepford Wives, I mean, wow. these movies are out there. Somehow this movie got fucked and the, whatever this company is called, not Meyer Briggs, Bristol Myers has like the final say over anything that happens. And apparently they just always go, we would rather make no money than license it out for $40,000, <laughs> you know, or even $200,000. We want $10 million. I- you know, the whole thing, like, I have to assume Criterion did the big um, Mikey and Nikki. Like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, I, whenever I talk to them, they're like, it can take years. Like, just the process yeah. of essentially doing what you're coaxing the rights from someone or coaxing a filmmaker out, you know, to be like, hey, do you want to, like, help us restore your movie or whatever? But, like, so maybe, hopefully one day, they or someone like them can do a proper you know remaster of this movie which it needs desperately it just feels like one of those things where this company won't even pick up the fucking phone yeah well fuck them they gotta figure it out it's just one of these things not to not to spiral out too much but that scares me about like fucking companies like at&t buying warner brothers because they start looking at it and go like why would we make a star is born that's nothing. That's $200 million. That's nothing to us. The whole thing that happens, because that's as much as it's freaking out, it's always been true. These, it's these, always been true. You know, studios get by, but bought by these companies. Yeah. And then, like, Coca-Cola owned uh, one of the companies, Warner Brothers, I can't remember who, Columbia, maybe? They owned Columbia when she was making Ishtar. That's one of the things that's that right. fucked that's over Ishtar. Right. Yeah, and yeah. then, and then the 10 years in, they're like, why are we doing this? Right. We, we keep having problems with the movies they make. Like, sell this. Like, yeah. fucking flip Columbia to whoever right. wants it. We who don't want it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, hopefully. Um, is there anything left? Just that, I mean, fingers crossed with this dakota johnson movie supposedly happening like maybe elaine may gets enough buzz and clout that 
enough people want this yeah to get a proper well, release we were originally going to do elaine may last year last april and then that story came out of like oh dakota johnson says she's making a movie with elaine may and then we realized we were going to do our razzies versus oscars bracket and she was the only female director who would fit into <laughs> either quadrant unfortunately yes. so we were like we have to hold on uh but then with covid and everything we're just like i don't know like is this movie gonna happen she's 88 yeah. years old now production is in such a weird state you know and it always felt like the movie was just kind of at early formative stage who knows but i want nothing more than to see her make another movie yeah. nothing more i would i would die for it. it it would be really like a lovely argument for generational hollywood stardom like as much yeah. as i detest seeing like these legacy actors like if dakota johnson is using her love her like family connection to hollywood and i guess love of old film to be like yeah elaine may needs to be out there that might redeem that nepotistic system for me for for a moment but not only that avery i'm sorry ellen that's not the truth is maybe the yeah. best elaine may movie that elaine may never directed it's the dakota great. johnson ellen degeneres birthday party interview is is it's this it's what we're talking Chef's about kiss. like that alone makes me go like oh dakota johnson would be a good elaine may protagonist yeah right box office game and sorry can i talk about the remake for a second yeah if we're so gonna do that box office we, we talked about two options because we can't find the box office for this so we we're saying we'll either do the top 10 of 1972 okay we'll do them both quickly and we'll do the top 10 the top five when uh the remake came out it, the the remake came out when i was uh trying university for the for the second time i have i have tried three times and never never completed uh very charles charles grodin-esque hell yeah uh but um yeah the second time was at university at uh, the cine world cinema near me um mm. <laughs> a franchise people from england or who have spent time in england might know of they had a sort of precursor to movie pass called cine world unlimited uh, where you pay, you know, £11 a month and you can go see as many movies as you like. And I signed up for this knowing that I would be skipping classes and going to see films, so I should get the best bang for my buck, not knowing that Cineworld, or at least the one near me, had just trash movies. Right, it was like the runoff theater. Yeah, so I, I saw, uh, and, you know, I had to get the value out of my unlimited card, so I saw the Heartbreak Kid remake twice in theaters. Wow. I saw Dan in Real Life twice in theaters. You I put saw it on your tab! Good Luck Chuck twice in theaters. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. It was a Chuck-heavy year <laughs> for mm -hmm. movies. A lot of Chucks. How many chucks could a could an industry chuck? Too many. So that's okay. that's my experience yeah. with Heartbreak Kit. Seeing it for free twice, hating it obviously. Well, fuck it. Let's let's do it right now. Then okay. Hell yeah. 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 Like right now. All right. October fifth, two thousand and seven. Look, maybe we'll okay. do the Farrelly's one day. Maybe we'll do this again. But I yeah, I didn't see this it. in theaters. The one thing I remember vividly is this movie underperforms. It comes out in a dead period where it should have had an easy big number one. It underperforms, and the studios spin on it was that the movie had come out the same weekend that Halo 3 came out. And it was the <laughs> first time that the movie studio said, like, we scheduled ourselves against a video right. game too big. We fucked up, right? The kids are all home with their Xboxes. That's hilarious. What do you want? The World of Warcraft expansion just released. What do you expect? What do you expect? Uh, okay. That, that is so funny because it's absolutely right. It came out, like, days after Halo yeah. 3 came out. October 5th, 
2007. It opened at number two, $14 million. Nothing to be ashamed of these days for a comedy, but yes, for a Ben Stiller vehicle, even if it was an R-rated one. And this, this is him re-teaming with uh, something about Mary people. This is like six months after Night at the Museum. Especially when you hear what number one is. It's a holdover. It was number wow. one the last week. It is a Disney family comedy. The game plan? The last Buena Vista film. Yes, The Game Plan. Uh, starring The Rock. Big hit. And uh, he's a football player. Uh, and he's got a kid who wants to do ballet or something. I, well, I have never Dave, seen the game David, plan. David, that kid was not part of the game plan for him. <laughs> kid was not part of the game plan. I remember there's a dog. He's like holding a dog. Yeah. It's like one of those things where he's like, I'm a football player. Here's yeah. this kid who's in a, a tutu. And I'm holding a dog. Like, he what? looks flummoxed. It's everything right now. Yeah. He's flummoxed as hell. It is fascinating, and I feel like under-discussed that there was that six-year period where The Rock was like, I am only a kid star. Yeah. Like, it was like, Witch Mountain, Game Plan, Tooth Fairy. Like, he was like, I just do family movies. Where when he came back to doing action in Fast Five, people were like, oh. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, you are you were a famous uh, athlete, wrestler Oh, you're holding type. a gun. Oh. <laughs> I enjoy this. Mr. Game you Plan. Like 40 of oh, these? right. You are covered in muscles. <laughs> oh. I forgot about those. That's the other thing. He slimmed down. He lost a bunch right. of weight in the family movie because he was like, I want to be less scary. Hmm. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Okay, so the game plan's number one. That's embarrassing. Number two it is embarrassing. Is Heartbreak Kid. Correct. Yeah. Number three is the movie. Uh, that I covered the red carpet for in London, and one of the stars of it drove his Hummer down the red carpet and into the lobby of the Odeon Leicester Square. The Kingdom? The Kingdom. Yes. Jamie Foxx. The two red carpets, if you if you bring that up, I know it's either going to be the Kingdom or Lions for Lambs. <laughs> I covered many red carpets, but those I know. were the two. Those are the I two that always the come funniest up. things happened. Right. He came out, he pop and locked into several like poses for the photographers. He said, the Kingdom, go see it. He got back in the Hummer. It reversed up. <laughs> he did not even pretend to go into the theater to watch the movie. And then Jennifer Garner told me she would never let her kid act. And I wrote that up for people and got like a bajillion hits. She rolls. So my boss was like, great job on the kingdom red carpet. Yeah. Jennifer Garner, great mom. Um, I've never seen the kingdom. I, I mean, either. I just love Jamie Foxx turning to a bunch of people on the red carpet and saying, <laughs> go see it. It feels We're like a slap in the it. face. <laughs> We're yeah. not invited. We'd be there we if they gave us to. a ticket. We're out here behind railings. <laughs> that came We're barricaded in like animals. I just remember, I remember being really hyped for that movie because Peter Berg seemed like this really exciting because he'd just done Friday Night Lights, which yeah. was like, oh, this movie's kind of like tender and interesting. And like, he's got Jamie Foxx coming off an Oscar win, I think. Mm -hmm. Reese, you know, Ray is what? When's Ray? 2005? It's right after. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. I mean, this was, that was one of the first things he shot entirely after right. the Oscar. You know, you've got Garner and you've got Jason Bateman in a dramatic role and like Arrested Development is still, you know, this cool thing that just, you know, is still on and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then like everyone was just like, meh. And I never saw it. And so I've never yeah. seen The Kingdom. I had the same excitement and never saw it. Uh, Avery, have you seen The Kingdom? I have not even heard of The Kingdom. It's set in The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> One of my favorite I don't kingdoms. Know. It's, it's like 
it's like a gritty, you know, modern, contemporary, like, war movie, I guess. But they're, hmm. like, maybe they're FBI agents or see, I don't know what they're but doing. But it is, like, I'm just, I'm just looking at this now, and it's like, you say that, and I get bored. But then I, I just go, like, but it's starring Jamie Foxx, Chris Cooper, Jennifer Garner, Jason Bateman. That has to be a little bit interesting, right? And I've never heard anyone say anything more enthusiastic than, it's fine. Right. Oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, okay, number four. Uh, it's a series we'll do on the Patreon one day. It is entry number three, I Is it Saw say. 3 is, or Saw 4? No. Not Saw. It's not a Saw. <laughs> oh, because, right, it wouldn't have a number. You you don't know. It, it is, it's the third. It's Resident Evil Apocalypse? Nope, that's <laughs> the second, but good, correct answer, you know, correct uh, franchise. Oh, Extinction extinction it's the one where it finally was like oh this is cooking with gas yeah i will say because the first one is a fun throwback thing the second one in my opinion is not very good the third one is where you're like okay okay you know i've only seen first and last a good argument for doing them all we gotta do it great movies um number five oh boy this is sort of why i wanted to do this i do remember this by name uh it is a fantasy a film. Um, it is hmm. an adaptation, I believe, of a popular young adult series. And my guess is they wanted to do more of them, but obviously no one is on it Earth saw it. The Secret of the Dark is Rising? I mean, like, that's pretty fast for you to get The Secret of the Dark is Beca- Rising. You know why? Opening at be- number five to $3 million, yeah. I might yes. point out. That's why. The Dark because is not rising. A, it's one of the worst openings of all time. It still charts pretty high up there in terms of low opening right. for that yes. many screens, that it had such big franchise ambitions. And also, when you said, I remember the title, I knew it was this, because it's just <laughs> one of the most what? apocalyptically <laughs> bad titles ever it's up there with ballistic x versus sever where it's like you're saying so much and yet not anything at all can i ask do do you guys know this one of my most hated pet peeves in like film and media games tv whatever Mm. what is the obsession with things rising I don't know. <laughs> They're always rising. It's, they, it's just dark like, is if, rising. Yeah. If people can't think of a title for their thing, they'll be like, well, does anyone rise in it? And then can we... I, I have to say also, it just like... I think without fail, Dawn always gets me more excited than Rise, right? Hmm. If you're, I don't, I don't love Dawn either. Though. I don't love it, I don't but it, love it, it, it hits more for me. I don't, th- I don't think Rise has ever gotten a rise out of me. It's funny since Planet of the Apes did both. It did I know, rise <laughs> and then Dawn, <laughs> and arguably did them in the wrong order. It yeah. absolutely did them in the wrong order. It made no sense when they no. announced that it was Dawn. I was like, the fucking sun already rose. It can't be <laughs> Dawn now. It's in the sky in your metaphor. And then they went to war for three. I'm like, this has nothing to do with the weather. But it's also like you look at like, I'm sure if you look at the synopsis on the back of the DVD, it says like, in in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the apes rise to power. <laughs> you know, rise of the Planet of the Apes, say the dawn of a new species. I just, the, the most recent example is like this game just came out, Immortals Phoenix Rising. And I just hate that. They, that they think I'm meant to look at I go, oh, Phoenix is rising in this one. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I don't know who that is. It's the whole thing. The, the Seeker. Uh, I don't know. Who's the Seeker? I don't care. All right, all right, all right. Don't worry about it. The dark is rising. And I'm like, all right, 10 tickets, please. <laughs> like, you know, like, what else? <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, that's the top five. Yes. Can I just say, 
okay, very quick side tangent. Uh, but uh, talking about uh, titles with this many words, it just fucking what are you saying? I zone out, right? The power of a good one word title. I was looking earlier through, uh, you know, careers of the actors in this movie and try and chart them all. And Jeannie Berlin, who's so great in this, gets an Oscar nomination, essentially does like three more movies and then doesn't act for like 15 years, writes a movie that her and her mother in doesn't act for another 11 years until Margaret and now has come back and has become like a fucking awesome She's older character She's on Succession. Right. She's on Succession. Hunters. Hair, Hunters. Right, she just rules. She rules in everything now, right? She's so good. I feel like she's finally getting appreciated the in the way she should When she have. was in Margaret, though, it was mind-blowing. It was like, Jeannie Berlin? Yeah, like, what the fuck? Yeah. 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 given just like a hall of fame performance. So I was looking at the movie she did right after this and this this same year she makes a movie directed by Larry Cohen, you know, sort of great the, trash you're, filmmaker you're talking about of Bone. David, do you know about Bone? I only know that it's a Larry Cohen movie with Yafet Kato. I've okay. never seen it. I don't know much about it. Yes. So this is all I want to tell you and then we can move on. This is all I want to tell you, okay? This is the IMDb synopsis. When a criminal breaks into the Beverly Hills home of a wealthy couple having marital problems, he unwillingly provides the spouses with an unlikely resolution to their conflicts, as well as a solution to his own secret problem. Starring Yafet Kodo, and the poster is black and white, white background, full body shot of Yafet with a hand on a hip, smiling, and then in just black stark letters, it says, Love Bone Before He Loves You. Why did no one tell me that Bone is the great American movie? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know, Griffin. I, I guess I got to watch Bone. Love Bone before he loves you. Nothing could get me into the fast the theater faster. Is his solution to their marital problems like have this have is... sex with your wife or I will? I hope it's fuck is, bone. I hope this movie's question. about everyone fucking bone. Yeah. Everyone should fuck bone. I don't know. Everyone should fucking bone watches. I don't know what's going to happen. I got to check it out. Is Bo- Bone on Prime Video? Oh, I'm watching it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 1972 in film. Let's do this uh, okay, quickly. Fast. This is, yeah. uh, well, th- th- I only wanted to do this because it's just like, this is where you are. Like, oh, it is another world. You know, like you look at an 80s box office, you're like, oh, come on. There's a lot of sequels. There's a lot of action movies. All right. So number one, obviously, what's the number one movie in 1972, Griffin? Is The Godfather. It's The Godfather. One of the most successful films ever made at the time. To this day, if you adjust for inflation, it's The Godfather. Now, number two is a prototype blockbuster, um, a disaster film, a famous disaster film. Is it Poseidon? It's the Poseidon Adventure. That's right. That's and like you know, it made half as much as The Godfather. But that is the movie where you're like, oh right, like the seeds are planted here, mm-hmm. right for the sort of modern blockbuster. Even if this is the Poseidon Adventure, sort of like weird half character you know movie half disaster epic right i don't know do you like the poseidon adventure griffin no i've never seen it i've never seen it oh okay yeah you know it's fun i just those feel like movies that just never it never feels like there's any argument to revisit the 70s Irwin Allen disaster movies as much as I find the idea of them Not charming. really. They're, they're right. I've just never heard anyone present them in a way where it's like that movie is still of intrigue to watch today. You know they're yeah they're watchable. That's pretty, you're, but you're right. Yes, they're not great art, and they're 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 prototypes in a lot of ways. Now number three though, that Griffin, we were talking about him a lot. He's a hot director this year. He last year he made 
an incredible debut film that got all kinds of Oscar attention. It launched big stars. Who is it, Griffin? We could talk about him in this episode, 1971. He launches two big stars. It's obviously not no, Mike Nichols. Multiple big stars. Not Mike Nichols, no. It launches multiple big stars. It might stars. be two. It might be two. Okay, but, it, but a comedy director? This is a comedy. The 1971 film is a drama. Huh. We were talking about, who did we talk about so much in this episode? I, did I just a whole keep thinking about, about Nichols. Him. You did a bit about Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich. So this is uh, last... a Paper Moon? Nope. Which was also a hit, but nope. What's the number three movie of 1972? What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? What's I up, forgot, Doc? The last Picture Show was not a debut. I forgot he made Targets before, but but, but early, obviously, his yes. breakthrough film. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yes, What's Up? Isn't that crazy? What's Up, Doc? The third most successful film of the year. Great movie. Yeah, rules. You should watch it. It's, it it's so of, much fun. One of Ben's best letterbox reviews. He watched What's Up Docs over the summer and he just wrote, maybe old movies are good. <laughs> <laughs> Broke my heart that Ben couldn't do this episode, by the way. I know. Absolutely. That's it. I was the heartbreak kid in, in that sense. Um, number four, Griffin. A Best Picture nominee, an iconic film. Uh, you know, with s- famous scenes that are remembered to this day, with a big star, still pretty crazy that it's number four, six, most successful of the year. Huh? Like a, a harrowing R-rated thriller with a big star. Yeah, a big star. I mean, you know, his stardom is on the rise. But yeah, it's a. Is it Straw Dogs? Not Straw Dogs, but you're in the right zone. In the right zone. So, like, that kind of star. In the, it's like a sort of shocking, transgressive film. Deer Hunter. It's not Deer Hunter. It's not Marathon Man. Not Marathon Man. These are all good 70s yeah. films that were shocking. Uh, uh, fuck. It's not Conversation, because that's after Godfather. Um... Uh, fuck, fuck. But a big shot. Like, the, there's, a scene, there's a scene that's still kind of iconic. Uh, well, yes. I mean, there's multiple scenes that are iconic in this film, but there's one that's iconic in a fun way. It's a musical scene in a film that is otherwise not musical. Do you know what it is, Avery? Is it Deliverance? It's Deliverance. Oh. John Borman's Deliverance with Burt wow. Reynolds and John yeah. Boyd and Nate Beatty. Why am I killing 1972 more than... I don't know. <laughs> it is yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Deliverance. Number four, Griffin. Number wow. four. And number five is a less well-remembered film, except as a GIF. It's an iconic GIF. Jeremiah Johnson. Or GIF. If yes, Jeremiah Johnson. Robert yeah. Redford is Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah. Wild. Uh, <laughs> a good movie. I've a never seen movie. it. A good movie. I was so astonished by the recent realization that people think that GIF is Galifianakis. Yes, I can't I know see people, it as Redford. I cannot. Really? Yeah. You've been Galifianakis pilled. I, I get that it surprises people that it's Redford because he's like very full faced in it. It's not like the sort yes. of classic uh Redford profile. He looks like he has this like sort of big chin, but it's just the beard, I think. Like it's yeah. just uh here, I'm gonna make it my background now. Now I just want I just like <laughs> Great it. it's I mean like honestly, like the revenant is just Jeremiah Johnson. Interesting. Uh, uh, just but like good? you know, a more well. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm more gritty, and like <laughs> there he is. God, it's so good. He looks so good. Um, Avery, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for crushing the box office game. 
Oh, my God. Avery, thank you for staying up through all that. Jeez. Oh, yeah, no. Thank you for being Come a good on. friend. Uh, yeah, you're recording this in your time zone, which is pretty wild. But uh, David was like, I don't know if it might be tough to record with Avery. And I was like, I think Avery and I have similar sleep schedules, <laughs> which means I think we'll be able to record the episode around our usual time. Yeah. Um, that was my guess. Hmm. Yeah, it's four in the morning here, so I'll be going to bed in five hours. Yep, perfect. Yeah. Yep, that's how I live. It's great. I essentially, <laughs> I essentially have bartender hours now because I just <laughs> everything I do starts at eight or nine p.m. I never leave my home, and I spend my whole day ramping up so my energy peaks at like eight fifteen. Respect, respect to all of you guys. It's great. It's great. It's great. I'm so happy. I feel really well adjusted. Uh, Avery. <laughs> People should follow you on Twitter. Yes. You have uh, uh, maybe the best Patreon uh, of anybody where you offer uh, absolutely nothing. Nothing. You get nothing. You get nothing. Uh, it's $2 and you, you make it very clear that you're not promising people anything in return. Nothing. Because I'm just... I've not been capable of making things for a long time. If if you're If you're a fan of podcasts, which you might be if you are listening to this right now... Then I made four, maybe five, I can't remember, episodes of a podcast called Swings and Roundabouts Swings and a few roundabouts, years ago. Yes. It's a great show. We we plugged it on Blind Check back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I remember. A great listen. It's it's a it's a scripted thing. I do a lot of uh, voices and have other people voice and the sound effects. And I think, it, I think it's uh, interesting. It's like um, stories from my past, but um, with like twists and uh, there's also fun little segments uh, with um, with like game shows that I, I made up and stuff because it's hard to do a sketch that isn't a game show when you uh, watch too much SNL um, a few years ago, I found out. Um, yeah, so please, uh, it's 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 still up at swingsandroundaboutspodcast.com, so check that out. And, and let's make it clear, you've, you've posted daily podcasts on your Patreon. You're just not promising that to people. They shouldn't no. get used to that. Yeah, I might I might do it. If you feel like it. Yeah, but yeah. I would. I wish I could charge $1. Patreon recommends you charge 2 because mm. of the way their fees are structured, so I'm like, okay. And yeah, you, you get nothing, but my my Twitter is pretty good. Yeah, and you can buy naked pictures of me on there if you like. You know, there are some famous directors who have done so who I will not name because I provide (laughs) excellent customer service. Hell yeah. Thanks again. I look forward to getting a a Pizza Express at some point uh, 10 years in the future when we can travel again. Pizza Express. Avery and I had like Pizza Express hangouts in London. It was so much fun. Yeah. Dough balls forever. Dough balls forever. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to The Great American Novel for our theme song. Thank you to our editing team, Alex Barron and AJ McKeon. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Uh, thank you to Joe Bowen and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. Check out our Shopify page for some real nerdy shirts and other types of merch. Uh, Patreon, we're, we're trekking along. Right? We're still, we're still trekking at this point. Absolutely. Tune in next week for Mikey and Nikki. And as always, I just want to point out, I sent in the chat of our Zoom the poster for Bone. And now that I'm seeing it full size, it is clear that in the poster, Yafat Koto playing the character of Bone is holding a rat. He's holding a rat, (laughs) possibly dead. I think that might be 
the solution to their marital <laughs> problems? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We can't. We can't go any further here. We don't know. I like. There's bone. too many questions. I like bone. You love bone. Well, I got it before he loves me. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>